He was one of the great geniuses of the movies. He was the master of suspense, romance, and the macabre. He was the remarkable Alfred Hitchcock. This is Jimmy Stewart, and I want to tell you about a very special event. The return of five Hitchcock pictures unseen for more than a decade. Five films from Hitch's private collection. Vertigo. The Man Who Knew Too Much. Nothing will ever hold you like Alfred Hitchcock's rope. And then there was all that trouble with Harry. And finally, my own favorite, Rear Window. Experience the genius of Alfred Hitchcock. Lisa, <laughs> Mona Lisa, men have named you. Um, yeah, I love when you say I know. I start off like, hello. Hello, young lovers, wherever you are. Welcome to another edition of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. That is Jay Blake. And this is Dion Baia. <laughs> and I just confused you. I'm Dion Baia. That's Jay Blake. And we're Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Um, there's confusion I've noticed, and not surprisingly, because there's always been confusion about my name. People are like, "Do you go by Jay? Do you go by Blake? Do you go by Jay Blake? Do you go by Jay Blake?" And my standard answer now is, "I go by Blake, but I'll answer to either." So <laughs> <laughs> he says to the ladies, "I'll uh, I go by both, but I answer to either." Um, well, my name's always been confusing. People just call me Dion Bea, or well, some people Dijon. pronounce it. Dion. Yeah, Dion. And what are you going to do at that point? You know, someone introduces you like on TV or in radio. You're just okay. I was interviewing somebody <clears throat> for the new Scored to Death book, and his lyricist, when he used to write uh, songs like in like the 40s and 50s, this wow. guy, his lyricist was named Dion. Oh, and he's and it was spelled D I O N, but he he pronounced it. I bet you, I would five will give you ten that that poor Dion was actually Dion, but because he was in the industry, <laughs> he didn't tell anybody. <laughs> and for how many years he had uh, that poor guy? He's like, yeah, you just call me whatever you want to call me. I've had it all my life. Um, I've got a very funny Al Sharpton story about that too, but I digress. Um, I do. Um, I'm speaking directly to Blake right now, but I guess everyone else might. Our, our regular listeners may may be interested. I did finish recently the Art Carney bio, and we were talking five or six months ago, we did the uh, Grumpy Old Men podcast, and we brought up um, Odd Couple. That he played Felix in the play. He originated Felix on Broadway, and we we didn't know why, what happened, why he didn't make it to the movie. 
And I learned that what's really weird is like, I don't know if you believe in fate or anything like that, but it's like where I'm living now in uh, out, right outside of New York City in, in Westchester, he was born and raised in Mount Vernon, the city over, uh, about 10 minutes away. And then when he got older and he moved, he literally moved to where I am now, two blocks over. If you remember the time you and I were walking my dog in that nice neighborhood, you're like, this is a nice neighborhood. He yeah. lived in that neighborhood. So when he was doing like the honeymooners and all that stuff in the 60s and 70s, he was living there. So like that blows my mind that he's like, you know, taking the same commute into me as working <laughs> in the city and stuff like that. But anyway, so during the 60s, uh, he, he suffered from alcoholism all his life and he was going through a really bad time with his wife. And he has this really weird thing where he was married for 25 years, then they got divorced, he married somebody else, they got divorced, and he went back with his first wife, and then they lived together until they both died. But um, he was going through hard times with his first wife, and he got the part on stage uh, in the Paul, S- Paul Simon, the Neil Simon, <laughs> very different. You can call me out. <laughs> uh, the Neil Simon play against uh, Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau was still relatively kind of an unknown, Yeah, and Walter Matthau started pulling all this shit on stage where he was really doing stuff like, uh, you know, when they would do live scenes, there'd be a scene where, like, he'd say a joke to Art Carney, and Art Carney's supposed to have this dramatic sequence where he's crying, and then it would get a laugh, so then, you know, uh, Walter Matthau would stop it down and, like, do it two or three times again to get, or walk down stage to get that laugh, like, you know, to, and it was really, everyone was like, what are you, you know, you're messing up arts, you know, so he was doing, and Art wouldn't say anything, so there was this pressure building because of the alcoholism, because of his marriage, and at one point he left the show, he just couldn't deal with it anymore, and he went and checked himself into a rehab place up in Hartford. So, that was kind of like when his career fell crashing down. So years later, when he was back on his feet, when they were floating around doing the movie, he was advocating for him and Jackie Gleason to try to be do the part. and, and then, Or at the very least, him and Walter Matthau. And they know that Walter Matthau was interested, but because they had that issue with Carney, and this wasn't a play, this was a movie, you can't cast somebody. If that's going to happen, everything will go crazy. You know, you'll, you'll lose yeah. all this money. And since Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon had just done the fortune cookie together, which we talk about on that cast, mm-hmm. that's why they cast the two of them. So poor Art missed the bus on that one. Yeah, but. Yeah. Jack, I know. But Jack Lemmon <laughs> didn't make it into the Star Wars holiday special, so. He did not. He, he wasn't the proto <laughs> Lando Calrissian. <laughs> yes. So. God bless our Connie. <laughs> So he's doing. He was doing just fine. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and Jack Lemmon suffered from alcoholism too. Maybe it's just that part of Felix Under Unger. Felix, you know. The... And then later on in the career, in this maybe late seventies, uh, uh, Art Carney reprised or did the play again, but he played the Oscar role. And I forget who played against him playing. Um, it was somebody weird. And I was like, oh, that's you know, wow, that's interesting well, to have be them. quite a bit older, right? Yeah. So they had him be like, you know, in his like late fifties playing. And then there was another guy who I forget who was the clean cut played against him. Oh well. And then we talked years ago too. Borgnine played it with uh, Borgnine played the Oscar role, and then Don Rickles played the uptight Felix role. And then Neil Simon actually said to him. Uh, you know, this is my favorite. Dude. He said something to Borgnine in the Borgnine bio. He talks about it that this is my favorite pairing, or you guys are really how I really envisioned it, or whatever. But yeah. anyway, I was just because I was so flabbergasted reading the Art Carney bio that, like, you know, he like lived around the block from me, <laughs> you know, and we, he can go to the same but you supermarket. Were like, I just finished the Art Carney bio. I was like, you know, nobody knew you were writing an Art Carney. <laughs> <laughs> I just finished penning my Art Carney bio that I wrote myself for my for my writing class. I did it for my essay class. 
<sighs> well, anyway, so uh, so we're here. That was a little reference to our to our. If you haven't listened to it, go check out our November. Like it was our Thanksgiving. Our, our Thanksgiving, yeah, 2018, and uh, that was about six months ago, I'd say. And Give then, take. Well, let's see. Last week we did Pee Wee's Big Adventure, uh, and that was fun. And then we we that was coming out of rock climb in February. And, uh, <laughs> rock climbing February. February rock climbing. Uh, we need to make promos. Rock climbing February. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday rock climbing February. And we've actually had people asking us too. I've noticed more people on Twitter. Want more rock climbing movies? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> they do. After we talked about high ice last week, they're like, "You gotta do." Then you're starting rattling them off. No, they're asking us about our secret sauce. Saying like, um, "Do you guys really record the podcast on a Saturday yeah, night?" Yeah, well, that's always kind of happened. You There's know, always been a few inquiries about the, uh, uh, the actual um, making of the donuts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I want to say we do. We're, well, right now, I mean, we go all out. Blake and I get into our old G.I. Joe and Transformer onesies. Pull they out the sleeping bags. They don't necessarily fit anymore. Get we, a little too old. Get a little too old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some, Sunday mornings are getting rough. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when we're over Blake's house and his mother has the hardwood floor. <laughs> the cement in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> Because we make so much noise now, our parents just relegate us to the basement. And, but in the basement, you know, they, they've taken up the carpets because of water leaks. So we just have this cold concrete floor. And since, you know, all the kids have moved out, nobody uses the basement anymore. So every week we got to just, like, move the cobwebs and the bugs in the corner and all that kind of a thing. So, But we're here and we... Hell, we've even one time, remember when we tried to set up the G.I. Joe uh, tent on top of the bed, but then we realized how it only covered our torso? Yeah. <laughs> our bed tents. Bed tents. I wonder why that never really caught on. I had a bed tent at my dad's house. I'm sure I've told this story. No. But it wasn't like no, a, no. It wasn't a themed G.I. Joe one. What it, was it? It was just like a blue tent. That's awesome. But it was a, be- so, it was a bed tent. And so right? the floor of the tent was a fitted sheet for like a twin bed. And it was connected to the was it anyway connected to the tent or no? I don't see since I never had one. This is where my ignorance yeah, comes yeah. into play. I don't know how they actually did that. Because I've seen now infomercials where there's ones where they're just generic ones and they seem pretty cool where they're like led yeah you know so it's pretty you know lights yeah it's like (laughs) sweet and ones like you can get like a princess one a pink one like a a spaceship one or a sky one for the kids (laughs) where yeah now it's like you know uh back then yours was just a generic tent yeah it was just like a blue tent would it click on or anything or well no because it was kind of stuck on with the fitted sheet oh okay you oh, know. so it was somehow connected to the sheet. Yeah, it was like the floor of the tent. Was oh, was the bottom was sheet. The bo- was the bottom fitted sheet. That goes on around the mattress. I get But then you. when you're a kid, like, I don't know, at least for me, like tucking in the bed. Yeah. Being tucked in was like a big deal. Yeah, and of Because course. of that, you couldn't tuck in the top covers because oh. the top covers were inside the tent. <laughs> it, was, it was that long? It was the whole- It covered the whole bed. Oh, because I thought- Like you slept in the tent. Aren't some of them traditionally like now, only the ones you're, you're saying now, it's the ones you're saying now, it's more like a- like a awning, yeah, or something. It's like one of those, <laughs> one of those uh, awnings that come down. When it, like, you know, you hit a button and they come. <laughs> but the older ones, even the GI Joe, they were actually I, proper length. I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess they're just smaller. <laughs> and so at my dad's house, for no reason whatsoever, I had a bunk bed. Mm, I did too. And uh, it Not was on the top house. bunk. But I usually slept on the bottom. You bed. have to have high ceilings though for that as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. But. Uh, 
It was fun, you know. Good That's times. awesome. I mean, then you don't know what's going on in there. I didn't even, <laughs> you know. And you, do you have to worry about? Um, and it's zipped up and everything. Yeah. So what happens if the kid has a seizure or something? Then you're trying to get into the tent. That's a good horror movie, right there. <laughs> <laughs> and you open the tent, and the kid's not there anymore, and you hear like, <laughs> in the wall. Carolyn. Yeah. She's she's in the tent. If you ha- if anybody out there had a bed tent. Yeah, send us pictures of your bed tents. <laughs> please, uh... Send us news. <clears throat> no, I'm kidding. Send please, us pictures please, of your... Uh, you know, let us know about your bed tent on Facebook. All I Twitter. remember, they had a G.I. Joe, they had a Transformer, they might have had like a He-Man or She-Ra, but that must have been a very lucrative industry. I did have the Transformer Hot Wheels. Not Hot Wheels, Big Wheel. You did? Yeah. It was just like the front of it kind of flipped up and it was like a robot face. Any Anybody in particular or just a generic robot I think it was face. just like a generic like robot. Like it could be GoBots. Or <laughs> yeah, it really could. It might have actually been just a generic robot <laughs> one. Uh, I had Transformer sheets, which I got really pissed off about because at some point my mom decided that it was her decision to just give them away to my next door neighbor when they were like that age. Yeah, yeah. And I was a little older. I was like, I want my Transformer sheets. <laughs> God damn it, mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> For my, don't you know, don't you know, woman. <laughs> From my from my single my short single bed that I don't have anymore, but uh, I had we talked about this my go, my big wheel was the uh, we po- we posted pictures a couple months ago my chips, big wheel was right? the chips thing that yeah. that the kid next door broke but it wasn't a big wheel it was that the chips thing was more of a like a plastic bicycle yeah that wasn't even a bicycle it was just you get on it and then it maybe I don't even know if it ha- you just push your feet and then after the the kid next door broke it. Uh, in front of everybody, and they laughed. My dad got me a proper Big Wheels. Uh, it was a Night Rider. I just imagine that scene being that scenario being like fisheye lens. You looking around, <laughs> and everybody laughing at me, <laughs> different color, and they're all coming in. And as they get close to my face, it distorts. Little Dion. Psst, I'm peeing on the ground. <laughs> there he goes again, little Dion, little Dion. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a horrifying experience. And you know, I have a memory now that we're talking about it of having a, a Dukes of Hazard uh, one. To maybe my what me and my cousin used to do is we'd go to the top of his street, which wasn't really an incline at all, yeah. but to us it was like Mount Everest. And we'd be on the sidewalk. We'd go all the way up. And I remember my parents would tell us like, don't go past this street and this fence so you get to a certain point and that was your starting position and then him and I would just race down and I mean the fun we would have going down on these like all uh, mishmashed and broken si- sidewalks <laughs> yeah. and you're flying and then gravel getting kicked yeah, up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> flying and you have no protection on you flying this and then what would end up happening too is with the with the Knight Rider the Knight Rider had this really awesome e-brake on one side yeah yeah so you in theory up. you're supposed to yeah you're supposed to speed the, you're supposed to turn your back end and you you see it screech right out like you would probably see a car in reality what would happen is you'd hit that e-brake and you'd be ejected from the thing <laughs> so you'd stop pull the or you pull the e-brake it would flip your back end and then you'd be ejected the other way you'd get up and you'd have all cuts and bruises. <laughs> that was awesome yeah, let's do it again oh, i'm gonna sit this one out guys though my knee nice. really hurts thick coat of gravel stuck in your wounds yeah i don't know do they have big real wheels anymore I've seen they have now, uh, which I thought would be cool for years. I was saying they should make it adult-sized big wheels, but then now I've seen they kind of have adult-sized big wheels, and they don't look as fun as, because they look like adult-sized big wheels. Yeah. I was picturing them making like a big old plastic version, <laughs> like like you know, like a yeah, yeah. She-Ra or whatever you were into at the time, or well, GoBots or, um, 
Now, what's get the other on one? It. License that shit. If we can get some licensing, do some proper like just we just enlarge the scale. That's all. <laughs> but then you probably get no traction because the 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 the, uh, the tires are just that crappy plastic. Well, you might need to put a little bit of rubber on there. Yeah, you have no the tread. Of an adult. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> It just becomes yeah. like a stationary bike. <laughs> Dion's had a heart attack. What's wrong? Oh, <laughs> we designed it probably. He's testing out the big wheel. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't get away because he couldn't get any traction with his big wheel. Oh, but yeah, those are the old days. Um, speaking of old days. Speaking of old days. <laughs> We're coming back at you. Uh, this 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 year, this week, we're doing something fun and interesting. Going way down the alley. Yeah, going way down to, uh, well, particularly to 1954, but, and more. It was more, a hell of a year. <laughs> when I was 17. <laughs> uh, it was a very good year. Um, we're doing Rear Window from 1954, but we're going to be talking about Hitchcock today, which is kind of daunting when you think about it. We try not to be pretentious on this cast, but now we're talking about stuff like Hitchcock. Next All week, right. we're doing the French New Wave. <laughs> 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 and then we're going to do it in German Expressionism. Uh, um, so let's see. If we jump right into this, can you remember your first entree, if that's I'm pronouncing that right? Of this particular movie or just Hitchcock Both. In How about that? That's an owl. Well, you know, I was trying to think of that on, my, uh, on when my mom was driving me over here. <laughs> Shut the window. Shut the window. Uh, I don't remember... I don't remember when the first time I saw this movie was. I mean, Hitchcock was kind of a big thing uh, my whole life. You know, we've talked about this privately, probably on the show. Like, your dad was, you know, much more into actors. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you kind of came to movies that way. And my dad was very into, like, classic Hollywood directors. And so Hitchcock was always kind of a big thing. So, like, for me, I would imagine this was, I probably came to this as, like, a Hitchcock movie. But if you saw this when you were little, you probably came to this as, like, a Jimmy Stewart movie. Me, yeah, yeah. probably. Um, uh, but, uh, so Hitchcock was always kind of, like, a name. And we would, you know, my dad, we would watch stuff. You know, it was... You know, we grew up at a time when we did have access to so much great, so many great films through video stores and stuff and cable. But there was still a little bit of like element of chance of seeing something like this. PBS would play stuff like this. A lot of the Hitchcock stuff and a lot of the older movies I saw, I saw through PBS probably Channel Twelve because especially my mom's house, I didn't have cable. Like that's how I saw the African Queen. Yeah, so my mom loved the African Queen, so we watched that. And for the longest time, because we watched it on a black and white television, I thought the African Queen was in black and white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, back in, the, back in the day, kid. <laughs> back in the old days. Not all your TVs were color. <laughs> but uh, it's quite an experience watching a black and white, like a 10-inch black and white TV in, like, your room. Yeah. I miss those days. Yeah. We probably, actually, we probably did watch it in my room. Yeah. Um because my parents had a cabinet TV, which was a, like a 15-inch or something, you know, like, like you know, yeah. uh, color. But then in the bedroom was a yeah. – my parents' bedroom was a black and white with, like, literally probably had a um, – yeah. Same a, with me. A, my a, brother a had – curtain. At some point for his for his birthday – my brother's like five years older than me, older than me. And at some point he got a very small black and white television for his room. And I think at that point maybe he had moved to my dad's house and then that little – 
television made its way into my room, maybe. Anyway, yeah, that's besides the point. Uh, so I don't really remember the first time I saw this movie. Hitchcock was just one of those names that I had always heard. Yeah. I do specifically remember the first time I saw Psycho, and we will save that story for if and when we ever get around to doing Psycho. I'm sure we will get. <laughs> but uh, I do have very specific memories of watching Psycho uh, for the first time. But uh, other than that, he's just like I said, it was a, it was a name, and it was probably and he was definitely someone that I took for granted probably for most of my life, and in a lot of ways probably didn't come to start to fully appreciate until probably we got out of film school. Mm. You know, a lot of my film school was meant being was uh, was spent. Being a little bit rebellious, <laughs> you know, bit. whether it was uh, t- intentionally or unintentionally. Um, so, and it was also, you know, it's also the kind of thing sometimes you get a little bit rebellious when you're into something against your parents. So when your dad's like Hitchcock, 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 John Ford, John Ford, John Ford, David Lee, David Lee, David Lee, because those are his three favorite filmmakers. You know, and I'm like, yeah. But, you know, John Carpenter, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is like a totally different, who's inspired by those guys, yeah. but a totally different kind of cinema. Uh, so it wasn't until I kind of uh, matured a little bit that I was able to be like, you know what, this guy fucking, you know, he's Hitchcock. Yeah. And he's that for a reason. You know, a couple, uh, last summer we did Jurassic Park, and I think it was in that podcast when I talked about how, in my personal opinion, Spielberg is probably the most uh, fluent director in the language of cinema that's probably still alive and working today. Just like the way he understands how to tell a story in cinema is very unique, very specific, but like also almost perfection, the way he does it. When you watch something like Rear Window or Hitchcock movie, you see that dialect yeah. <laughs> of cinematic language, you know, at, at its like most at its peak, you know. So it was really interesting revisiting this one, having had that discussion about uh, Spielberg and feeling the way that he displays information. And I think in that particular podcast, I talked about the scene where Laura Dern's rebooting the system and then it pans down and you see the electric fence and then you see and then it the cuts suspense, to them on the yeah. end, like climbing the electric fence. You know, it's just like this that's uh, like makes me laugh. It's so perfect the yeah. way it's displayed. And there's a lot of that going on here, the way Hitchcock just has the a command of the, of the language of cinema is kind of astounding. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. To answer my own question, I don't really remember either coming into Hitchcock. I think maybe I might have saw him. Prior, just on the Alfred Hitchcock presents, sure, because yeah. that that was in syndication. When and we were then little. there was an eighties <clears throat> version. Yeah, and of I don't it remember that one. Kid. I maybe maybe if I saw particular episodes, because I went back and looked, because you you brought it up recently that they did the man from down the man from the south, the one with Steve McQueen and Peter Lorre. It's, yeah. I can't remember who was in it, but the, I remember the, watching it specifically and being kind of really creeped out. And I can't, re- I can't remember now who played the Peter Laurie part, but the Steve McQueen guy was played by the, and I can't remember his name either. I think his name is Steve, the guy who plays uh, Al Pacino's brother in Scarface. 
Oh, yeah, okay. Or his friend, and he ends up shooting him at the end because he's having sex with his sister. Remember, he kills Spoiler him. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, whatever, it is, whatever that guy's name is. I forget his name, too. Uh, and I've met that gentleman. Uh, he's the guy that uh, that plays that that part. But anyway, I remember specifically watching growing up the Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and I used to find them a little. I used to love the Twilight Zones and all the other stuff that was modern of the era. And I felt uh, the Alfred Hitchcocks I always thought were a little slower, but I always liked them. And I remember you know going over to my friends' houses and. and being in my friend Martin's basement, watching him at night, and he wasn't into him, and he'd leave. So I'd watch him with Martin's parents or Martin's older brothers would be into him. We'd watch an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But I guess this could have been stuff where I got – I used to spend a lot of time going to the library as a kid. There was mm-hmm. a library up the street for me that I could actually bike to, like one of the um, – what do you – like um, – uh, remote or whatever you call those locations in the in satellite locations in the town. So uh, I was able to check things out that way, and that's how I was able to first come into, like, uh, me loving old-time radio with suspense. I got that from the library. And I think I got Psycho and maybe a couple others of Hitchcock's from the library. And, I mean, I certainly knew who he was because if I gauge it by, in 1992, I think it is, um, my family went for a second time down to Florida, and uh, we went for the day to Universal Studios. And Universal Studios then had a big Hitchcock building because they yeah. owned all the rights to everything. You can walk through. And by that time, I knew, I remember, and that's, what am I, 12 at that time? And I knew who Hitchcock was, and I'd seen a lot of them. And I remember they had, like, they showed you how they did the fall from Saboteur off the uh, Empire Sta- uh, the, the Statue of Liberty's hand, or yeah. they had uh, how they did this in Psycho, or they had this and that, and or they had the Psycho house. You can go take a stand here, and you can, uh, and then I remember specifically, and I went back to see, and I don't have any of these things transferred from... VHS to DVD because I had my video camera when we went out for all this stuff, but they had a little installation where you'd walk up to a rail and I don't know, say like say 20 feet across, they'd be um, <coughs> it'd be almost like a replica of all the apartment buildings yeah, with little movies going on. In yeah, little, little TVs, and then in there there's little movies, and I think there maybe even be somebody there who's giving you some sort of tour. They'd be like, okay, see and if you can find lo- the murder, and then you'd have to look with binoculars yeah. Yeah. and see if you could find the murder happening, like say 20 different things, and they'd be like, okay, you missed it. Well, here it is. So I remember all that, and I knew and what it was. It was like a live show. Yeah, of- and they would show. At least when I went, which I was a little bit older when I went than you were, so it was a few years later. They would also show a scene from Dial M for Murder in 3D. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, I do remember that too. So it's like they had this whole, and it must have been because we could talk about later when Universal acquired those movies in particular. Uh, they were, you know, because I remember I bought a shirt. I came home with like a Norman Bates Psycho shirt, vacancy, and then that's another thing too is. Growing up, the sequels to Psycho, I might have even seen uh, Psycho 2 and Psycho 3 prior to seeing the original Psycho. I probably saw Psycho 2, or at least you know sections of Psycho 2, and, and if I hadn't seen the whole thing before I saw Psycho. And then me knowing Anthony Perkins from The Black Hole, and I'm like, oh, it's that guy, you know, Norman Bates. So I'm, that might have been a foray, foray into me, yeah. a June foray uh, <laughs> uh, into me uh, seeing uh, Hitchcock. And... Uh, <laughs> It's weird because Hitchcock, we talk about people like Disney or like uh, uh, Michael Eisner or uh, Stan Lee being that guy that puts themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And Hitchcock certainly, when it came to the early 50s, Hitchcock made that decision. He was always kind of that way. But certainly when they gave him the TV show and around the time this movie came out and then, I mean, he became like a- He was often in the, well, I don't know when it started, but especially, I mean, the, the one from Psycho is- like legendary, where it's like he's in the trailer. Oh yeah, giving the yeah, <clears throat> talking about what happens, and that's a beautiful trailer. And uh, I mean, he would. This is, and I was trying to think about this in relative today. 
uh, he would get top billing sometimes over his actors. It'd be Alfred Hitchcock's rear yeah. window, Alfred Hitchcock's psycho. So uh, that's pretty incredible to think of. Um, he's gotten to that magnitude where he's actually now uh, commanding the top billing. I can't think of any other filmmaker of his generation or earlier <clears throat> that would maybe at the time be that way. You know, now we can look back and we can say, like, okay, Howard Hawks yeah. was an auteur, John Ford, David Lean, and maybe they were, but certainly none of them were in front of the camera. I know, uh, say, Cecil B. DeMille would do that. He comes out, say, before the Ten Commandments and yeah. says, this is a big epic, and, and you know, William Castle did some of that in the mid yeah. to late 50s, but that might have been just an answer to try to grab some of that Hitchcock um, you know, audience, yeah. you know, but you're right. I can't think of anybody offhand that would come out and talk, you and know, there aren't the director, that, I mean, yeah. you know, and there aren't that many that still do that. I mean, there are people that we know. You, you know, don't see I, Quentin Tarantino be like, hi, I'm Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm a movie for you. I just made a new movie. It's <laughs> called, a, called Django. And boy, do I say the N word in it. <laughs> Let's see a clip. You know, for people, uh, for our Italian listeners, Argento's always kind of been that way. Like yeah. in the 70s, he had a, he hosted a television show, and I think even maybe in the 90s, early 2000s, he hosted <clears throat> like a Giallo-style television show, and he has a bit of a persona and a fame and like a, a celebrity in his yeah. own right, as, you know, obviously through filmmaking, but kind of, on, you know, outside of filmmaking also. And Scorsese does a tad of it. You know, he yeah. cameo kind sometimes. I mean... You have Steven Spielberg cameo like in the Blues Brothers, but you have Scorsese cameoing in Taxi Driver, and then to a point now, remember he was doing like what was it, Kodak commercials a couple of years ago, where he yeah. comes in and he didn't like the pictures, and he's like, I gotta do the whole picture, and he calls the kid up like, we're gonna do your christening again, okay? You know, it's like yeah, you know. yeah. Or even okay, how about Spike Lee? Spike Lee would do that in the '80s. He certainly became. He had those Nike commercials where he was like doing uh yeah, know. but he wasn't Spike Lee in those. No, commercials. exactly. I forget he was a yeah he was a personality with the hat and the glasses. He wasn't yeah he wasn't. I'm Spike Lee, and this is. You know, I feel like we're missing. I feel like we're missing somebody. I'm sure, that, yeah, yeah, I'm you know, sure there are exceptions to the of, rules. You know, but you're right. There's some. He I mean he puts himself out there, and then it's just, you know, it's the is it the first time? It, it's like like you said, you brought up about cinema language or or, yeah. or or how he speaks and how he's able to just talk the talk. I mean, his movies are just distilled in a way where you don't have that. You know, it, it's 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 the all the whole voyeurism of everything. Where he, it's an interesting idea reading about this, where you you, you kind of have the idea where like a lot of another example too is a lot of movies he designs them in such a way where he, it's almost like he it, like Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant is playing Hitchcock in the movie. Yeah, you know, you could see Hitchcock is putting him. It could be him playing the role but he can't because he's not an actor so he gets somebody who can do it but there is a situation you know he always it's it's always like he puts these people like the big thing in his movies is he's certain a lot of them is he puts like a normal life is is just uh, kind of upended a certain way yeah. because of or mistaken identity or or you, sure. you, you catch kind something like happen the average joe is thrown into yeah, an, an, an extraordinary un, circumstances. I mean, this happens like 30, which you know, Jackie. Ch it's the plot of a lot of Jackie Chan movies. Yeah, too. yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's a proven formula. I mean, he's got him in like almost a dozen of his movies: uh, Thirty Nine Steps and Strangers on a Train, The Birds, Saboteur, uh, North by Northwest, Catch a Thief, Man Who Knew Too Much. Both of them. He's, he likes getting a guy in a situation, and even a little when you get on, it's kind of like, especially with the you know, the Man Who Knew Too Much, the remake. 
with Jimmy Stewart, and then like North by Northwest, it's these fantastical kind of yeah. plots where they're like you know traveling. Yeah, and it's it's uh, spies or it's like either it's with saboteur. It's about like Nazis and Third Reich, or then in the fifties maybe it's communism or just Cold War stuff. Uh, you know, or Rear Window, which is a, a you know simple catching a murder. It's just, it's just fascinating that he's able to 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 have a certain and then he's also by that time they they give him the freedom to 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 do what he wants you know and able to just not really uh you know he, they they don't really have too much control like i guess david oselznik uh earlier in in hitchcock's career when he first got to america he does rebecca which is his first american film that era in the 40s, Selznick is kind of on him. But yeah. then when he leaves, I guess that's Warner and he comes well, to yeah. Paramount. I mean, he notoriously really didn't pun unintentionally because <laughs> <laughs> he made a movie called Notorious with Selznick. <laughs> but uh, he didn't care they didn't get along. No. Because Selznick was back then, and you know, and still to this date to a certain extent, producers are really a like a big creative force in the movie, and the directors are hired by the producers to, you know, put their vision on on celluloid. But uh, Hitchcock was coming from a different spot, so you know he was coming from like this his movies, not Selznick's movies. Yeah. And so Hitchcock would only sh- shoot, and that's this is a brilliant exactly what he needed. To be assembled exactly the way he wanted it, so so that Selznick couldn't change the movie in the editing room. Yeah, so if so if he shot, you're supposed to shoot coverage. They tell you in film school, you shoot coverage of a scene because if you get into the editing room and then you suddenly realize something doesn't work, if you don't have that reaction shot or the long shot or whatever you need, you may box yourself into a corner yeah. and it may look terrible. So what Blake is saying that if, if yeah. Selznick... Basically in editing, you want options. Yeah. You know, because... Like you said, sometimes the execution of what you have in your head doesn't necessarily always work. Yeah. You know, George Romero, who uh, I think, you know, we did a, when Romero died, we did a little bit of a tribute episode to him. And I think we talked a little bit about him as an editor, because uh, to me, Romero's biggest strength as a filmmaker is probably in the cutting room. And when you look at a movie like The Crazies, that movie his has version, a million yeah. cuts, you know, his version of The Crazies. And Romero's, you know... His thing was always as an editor, like give me. I'd rather have a hundred, like mediocre shots, than one really great one. Yeah, we because <laughs> I can with a hundred mediocre shots, I can make I can make anything work. But what we talk about that in in uh, Dawn of the Dead this past Halloween, because that's why there's so many. That leads to those different variant cuts of Dawn oh, of the Dead yeah. because of that. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Hitchcock would shoot it in only such a way so that even if they took the picture away from him and tried to go edit it themselves, the, the, the studio or the producer. They really only had limited options. Yeah, the, so that they could really had to cut it the way he envisioned it. And it's, it's, it goes to a testament where he would, you know, Hitchcock would storyboard the entire movie. He'd know exactly what he wanted. He wouldn't really be getting to set and being like, let's try this. Well, well, even if you look you at know, the script for Rear Window, the, like the finished script, when you, if you, if you, you know, you see it in a documentary or, you know, online or whatever. It's broken down into shots. Yeah. I mean, even on the script, it's like, you know, close up this, pan to this, yeah. you know, moving up. And that's kind of this. sometimes the uh, the hypocrisy of Hollywood because then you go try to write your script and then someone's like, well, you can't really have this in there because you have to envision that another guy is going to go do it. So yeah. it's only because it's Hitchcock's able to write it. He's writing it for himself and mm-hmm. he can be that detailed where you're supposed to be way more ge- generic when you write a script so that someone like, if I write a blick and go do it and take it and not, 
you know, and yeah. do his own version to it. So Hitchcock certainly had a way in Selznick that shows up in this movie where he, he makes Raymond Burr look like Selznick. He makes Raymond Burr have the white hair, wear those style glasses, yeah. hold the ca- the phone in a certain way, uh, all to like just kind of, um, uh, what's the word, kind of uh, uh, lampoon yeah. uh, Selznick to a certain extent. So once he leaves, I guess that's Warner maybe or so in the 40s and he comes over to Paramount, he gets a five-picture deal with Paramount. And the deal was that he would be able to get a five-picture deal with Paramount that would allow him to uh, produce and direct his own movies, which he would be able to then retain the rights to. And that ter- ends up being Rear Window, The Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Remake, Vertigo, and The Five. And then they, and then because of that, they would, they, the, the studio would want a sixth movie, which would be a commercial film, that they would have the rights to or, or retain. And that, would be, that ended up being To Catch a Thief the Cary Grant, um, Grace Kelly movie. So he comes over here to Paramount in the early 50s after leaving Warner, and I think he had just finished I Confess over there. Yeah, there's that that period with, like, post-Selznick and pre-Paramount that, like, I'm just, I'm just confused about. There's a couple. Like, where things are, because at that time was the studio system, so he would maybe be lent out to direct something for another studio even yeah. though he was under contract with Selznick. Like, I think he gets lent out to make, like, Suspicion or something. You yeah. know, like, I don't... Maybe I'm wrong about the, the movie. So even though, like, that, those are during his Selznick years, he makes a movie for somebody else. So there's a lot of confusion because, you know, you have all... There's a lot of great movies during <sighs> that period. I mean, you got The Wrong Man with Henry Fonda. This is... Know, yeah, a fi- yeah, 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 50s. And know, those are black and white as well. Um, yeah, I confess, black, you know... Uh, sus- suspicions a little before with Notorious is with Selznick. I Love Rope. Uh, yeah. Rebecca's his first, like I said, American movie he does in America. Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt. Sabat- Sabat- no, Sabat- Saboteur, maybe? I don't, I don't remember if that might be post-Rebecca when he's over here. Yeah. Because that takes place here, remember? Shadow of a Doubt is uh, one of my favorites and was also Hitchcock's favorite. Yeah, it's Hitchcock's favorite movie, too, with jo- good old Joseph Cotton, in uh, which they don't really really leave you any Shadow of a Doubt in that movie. <laughs> yeah, going which on. is my, my one complaint about that movie, is that there's really... <laughs> the, 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 you're not left with a shadow of a doubt. The title is very <laughs> misleading. But, uh, I mean, I love my favorite... One of my favorites of his is Rope. It's just, you know, he would do I'm these exercises. Curious. I mean, I know we're not doing Rope, yeah. but I'm very curious to hear why, what you like so much. Because other, other people do, and I've never... Really liked Rope all that much. I think because it plays out like a play. I mean, I love Jimmy Stewart as an actor, and I like how the idea of them playing it out almost like a play, and then the idea of like Rear Window, it's completely in one location, yeah. a set. I love through their window that um, New York City skyline that they have to change, which is what you end up seeing with this, what they do in this movie, Rear Window. I love all that idea, and then I like the idea of trying to play this stuff out long, because the idea with Rope is that, Jesus, like, what is it? It's only like 10 or 11 different takes but what he would do is he would uh do a whole take with the 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 attempt was to make it a seamless movie with no cuts yeah to make it appear that way yeah but but a reel of film is roughly 10 minutes yeah so uh there had to be cuts so that you could change magazines magazines yeah so the reason why i've never really liked it and it's it's funny because this is you know it's a similar concept in that this is really one rear window is really one location yeah. and rope is really one location but by for me by doing rope as like a one continuous movie on one set played out like a play like it eliminates anything cinematic about it to me <laughs> yeah well maybe that's <laughs> you know which is why yeah. like i'm like I, and that's why he i think is why he doesn't like it it was a yeah. it was like an attempt to do something that he feels 
was a little bit of a failure. Uh, and I didn't know that when I first saw it. And I was just like, I, like it, I get, I appreciate the attempt of what he's trying to do. I don't think it's entirely successful, but it does kind of, whereas Rear Window is maybe one of his most cinematic movies. He ends up doing like a one location movie, but makes something completely yeah, cinematic it's an out of rope. it. Yeah. Whereas Rope is very much like, it's very much a play. It's and, that, and that's why to me, I don't, really like it all that much. I mean, I don't hate it, but as far as like, if I was going to put it on a scale of my Hitchcock movies I loved, it would be lower on there. Um, Um, You know, is it his first color movie too, maybe? It might might be. Um, And I love, I mean, as you just said, I'm a character-driven, performance-driven guy, so I love Sir Cedric Cedric Hardwick in it. He has a fabulous voice. Yeah, well, the performances are really great. Uh, Farley Granger, who ends up being then in one of his best movies of all time, Strangers on a Train, uh, which is also around this period. Um, and then, you know, of course, Jimmy Stewart. And, and, and I like the play, you know, and, and I mean, the movie, there's a conceit where even they shot a scene of rope uh, of the victim, and not to get into the movie, and that was the only scene that was going to be outside the apartment, and they end up scrapping. They don't show that, and I think they only show it in the trailers. And then it cuts to Jimmy Stewart like, that's the last time you're going to see him alive, <laughs> and it's the last time I am. Um, but the, the conceit is at the beginning of the movie starts with the murder. Yeah. And then the it's all it's based off the uh, Leopold and um, Loeb and Leopold case from the 20s that another movie re- uh, compulsion the o- Orson Welles who's in movie about these kids in the 20s who actually committed this murder and they thought they were so smart they wanted to see if they could and that's a like a theme and it seems like in decades or generations where you, every generation or two you get these really smart-ass kids who are, like, in their teens who want to see if they can commit a murder. Because this just happened a couple of years ago. It's some, a couple girls k- killed this poor little girl to just see if they could do it for, like, bloodlust, you know, and it's this terrible psyche. But it was a, based off that case. And at the beginning of Rope, you see them kill the guy, and they put him in the trunk, and then they ho- they host a dinner party, and they want to see if they can – and then that's that's the – they're so happy with themselves, they almost give themselves away. Yeah. And then Jimmy Stewart, their professor, that comes over and he starts to realize. So, Rope is forty nine, I think. And there, and then the problem, like what Blake is saying, you can only have the say your the longest of his takes can only be ten minutes. So you have to then he'd have to do a clever thing like uh, he'd pan and then go into somebody's back and try to make it seamless. And then when you come out, that'd be a cut or something like you know try to get it different stuff when you have to be really good about staging and Jimmy Stewart says that was probably the hardest movie he ever did because if you messed up at some point during the take you'd have to go back to one like it was a play and start everything over yeah. you know so i think i like maybe the, the that the, the the technical prowess on that end but you're right this is ends up being the rear window a polar opposite because it is a one location movie but then there's so many cuts yeah and there's only a handful of cuts where you're not Jimmy Stewart's point of view, there 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 are a couple shots where you leave the apartment. Yeah, like when the dog dies. But it's also alert. like not even. I I think I think like the layman wouldn't even notice. No, it's only like the, in that scene when the dog dies. There's reaction shots. There's a reaction shot of Miss Lonely Heart. Yeah, and you, it's maybe the first time you even see the reverse of what. Jimmy Stewart's apartment really looks like until the very end when they're trying to rush over and he's hanging out of the window. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so yeah, it's it's so that's like, like the other thing I like about Hitchcock is uh, I love I'm like a, a a sucker for like bringing up Art Carney, have, having the mindset of thinking like somebody was actually here sitting in this chair, or, you know, was around in this location, and I'm here now. It's you know, it's it's weird, you know, and. I like the idea in Hitchcock movies that, like, he some of the bigger ones, he puts them around, 
you know, like uh, Mount Mount Rushmore in North by Northwest, or, or sure, yeah. Statue of Liberty in in Saboteur, and Rare Window. It's a it's a Greenwich Village, you know, and then yeah. you only get oh, that Vertigo, little San Francisco, San Francisco such a character in exactly, that you know, and you get that little sliver in New York City in that in the alley, people going by in Rear Window, and I mean, certainly you can't say that about Psycho is in a, a motel you don't know about, but there's certain I love when he. He puts you in places that you're Grand Central, in, 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 where I go to every day in North by Northwest, where you can see these. And then you have this fantastical plot uh, be carried around through that location sure. you might be aware of. You know, I don't know if I told this story. Maybe we did like a sidecast where we talked about one of my trips to L.A. But I went, I took... A lot of my trips when you we got when you got back from your book signing, Score to Death, uh, conversations with with some of uh, <laughs> horror horror movies' favorite composers. <laughs> Close enough. Uh, uh, and you, t- but was- I took the Universal tour at one point, like the hot, like the Hollywood Universal tour, and you know you drive by Bates Motel, and then like this guy that looks like Anthony Perkins comes running up to the. Oh, they got a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he comes running up. But it's like that guy. That's all he yeah, does. So I'm saying, like, all uh, day. Addresses a woman. No, he's just an Anthony Perkins. Oh, he's not uh, in the, 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 you know, with the hat. No, that would be fucking creepy. (laughs) Yeah. But then right behind the Bates house, uh, they have the crashed plane from War of the Worlds. Okay, the the new one. And so we stop at the the plane crash. Yeah. And it is, it actually is really creepy. Yeah. Because it is just like this plane splayed out. Yeah. In a house in or whatever. pieces and stuff. Yes. And the guy who's hosting, you know, and they you have two uh, guides, tour guides. And they're like, if anybody wants to go get their picture taken in front of the Bates house. <laughs> or the plane crash. <laughs> you know, you know, come and I'll take your picture over there. It was me and one other person. Nobody else wanted to go see the Bates house. Everybody else was just walking around the, the you know, the. Pl- the crashed plane. Nobody wanted to go see the fucking psycho house. The psycho. House. <laughs> you wonder is because how, what, what was the um, the, uh, the? I just age don't think range. anybody cares about it. Oh, but it was it was a bunch of young people, or what, was, mean, it, was it was yeah. it skewed? Or I mean, it was some families, but I mean, you're getting on. Jesus, sixty years already, right? I guess I from know, but from psycho. I know, but you're right. <laughs> it, it may not. People may not even care. I mean, I saw people talking about. Was it Psycho? I was looking up something on Amazon. Or was it you who told me? So I See, I don't remember my stories. I adopt people's stories as my own. Or you said, like, someone said, like, uh, it was a good movie for black and white. Or, you know, like when people oh, were reviewing yeah. Psycho, or it's like, it's good for a black and white, or an old movie. Yeah, or something. Yeah. like, what are you, stupid? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they get a lot of, uh, it just it's, it's, it annoys me, uh, you know, how people won't. You know, for the longest try. time, because, you know, <clears throat> because of that Alfred Hitchcock Universal Exhibit that you were talking about earlier, um, which I don't think is any is there anymore. I don't think it's there yeah. e- anymore either. But like you said, who's going to care about Avi? <laughs> <laughs> which is a shame because it know. was very cool. Yeah, it's awesome. But didn't I mean as a kid? Let me ask you because as, you know I I don't remember when I saw it. I was a little bit older, but th- there is like by having the the Statue of Liberty hand, yeah. and then by having like you said like this miniature set of the rear window set. Did you get like get a sense that or assume as a kid that like that's how they did the special effects for the set? Like 
it was Jimmy Stewart like looking at like <laughs> yeah I get you <laughs> which, know which wasn't the case no <laughs> yeah, it was, they like, just it was like misleading it. to me yeah I mean you know and another thing why I was into it that, so like much. it was Jimmy Stewart sitting in a window looking at a little model with like these little films going on yeah in, like a little eight, window yeah like a terrible like eight millimeter eight inch which camera. is completely opposite which is in that. They built they the, built the biggest set that Paramount had ever built up to that point. Yeah, indoor indoor for, set for that. Uh, I, I you know, I I don't remember uh, that per se, but I do remember being really into it because you and I have brought up because of we then went into film. We loved behind the scenes stuff when we were little. Yeah. We loved the special effects, Tom Savini or the splatter effects or how you do this and that. So that day at Universal, my mom and my sister went to uh, Walt Disney World. And then my dad and I only went to Universal, so we went on the King Kong ride and all that kind of stuff. And I remember, you know, you had the Hitchcock experience, I'll call it. We had all this stuff, how you do this kind of thing. And then also, you'd walk across the street and you get on, and at this time, this is 1991, they have a ride for Earthquake, the mid-'70s Charlton Heston movie that has George Kennedy and a whole bunch of other yeah. people. And then you're waiting in line, and they're showing you, like, uh, on TVs, like, you know, interviews with people of how they did stuff and then they would show you how to and then then while you're it's, it was clever to so you're not just waiting there for an hour because it takes you so long that they have you doing stuff in the line where like maybe like a pillow would fall on you and yeah. they would green screen you up there and you realize oh it, it's only like styrofoam it doesn't hurt you know so there's it was all that so i was so interested in the the behind the scenes craft of the saboteur how they dropped the guy from the statue of liberty hand or you know certainly seeing the bates motel house like you know they and then you get a lot of that later on the MGM Studios lot where you go and see yeah. like how they did Honey I Shrunk the Kids on the B or uh, the, the back tour ride of them showing explosives and stuff like that. So certainly people like you and I who were really into like movies and, and how stuff was made and making our own movies back then. Yeah. This was just complete fodder for us to like eat up. You know, wanking material. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you for know, spank, yeah, for the spank. I'm gonna say you for later. <laughs> all right, you know, I'm some union guy. Yeah, all right. You got calzones. Um, so I mean, I, I so my p- frame of reference is, I must have known who Hitchcock was because this is uh, I'm 11 or 12 and I'm into it. I grab getting shirts. I must have already seen Psycho and I must have seen Rare Window. I mean, I'll be completely honest. I remember in high school trying to rent North by Northwest and not enjoying it. If you know, I watched yeah, it then yeah. and it was long. I was like, what's going on? I don't understand it. And it wasn't until maybe college I went back and watched it again and like, this is a masterpiece. Yeah. And well, then, that is like, I think maybe <clears throat> my dad's favorite Hitchcock movie. Yeah. So North by Northwest was just one of those movies that was kind of always around. And of course, as Dion knows, as Dion is also, but as Dion knows about me, I'm a huge lover of Cary Grant who isn't <laughs> so <laughs> who isn't but this era of Hitchcock I mean I love like the look of Technicolor I love that 50 cinemascope or Vista vision and uh, so like this era of him doing rear window uh the trouble with Harry vertigo certainly north by northwest just the look I mean that era of Manhattan in the 50s I just love how everything looks and just the the, the reds and the blues and the, you know the, yeah. the color temperatures well, that film stock is yeah, it's also just, very specific It's so lovely so like you know it's very like Warner Brothers like Rebel Without a Cause like all that you know so like I love this whole era of 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 the time and everything and um it before we segue into the movie it's funny cuz then so we used to have a joke, Blake and I, when we were in college, where we would, <laughs> where we would, um, where we we were going to cast ourselves a James Bond movie. 
Uh-huh. And remember that when we would have. Uh, well, yeah, we've always. I've always said that our our perfect mo- James Bond. Most of our impressions are all from classic Hollywood. So I always said that we would be a big hit on like. The old person's yeah, home circuit. Yeah, the convalescent <laughs> home circuit. We would go around. And our joke was that, see, uh, Ian Fleming had originally written the James Bond character in mind for, like, Cary Grant. But yeah. he had aged out. He thought he had aged out of the role by the time they made the movies. So Blake and I were going to go back in, in, I don't know, what world we were in. What if Dr. No was cast Yeah, <laughs> differently? Yeah. So we would sit at a diner table at, at, like, midnight. And we would go back and forth for Cary Grant. Cast as as doc, Bond. as Bond, you had James Mason as Doctor No. Yeah, <laughs> James Bond. Yeah, you expect me to talk? That's not even uh, Doctor No, Mister um, <laughs> Hand or Mister. <laughs> that's a whole. Other. Yeah, that's a whole. Other. <laughs> that's a whole other. One. If we ever do that movie, then we can get into that. We had Peter Lorre on set because he's like the hangout as a henchman, and then we had uh, it was it was going to be directed by Alfred Hitchcock, yeah, yeah. and then. We had that day visiting the craft services table because the craft service table was very good. Vincent Price and Jimmy Stewart. They were yeah. so they were on and set. I th- and I think Connery too showed up for craft services. Yeah. And we the way we always imitated Peter Laurie was that he had a very short fuse. Yeah, he's always he's, he's, <laughs> he gets pissed very quickly because of Jimmy Stewart's doing something that just pisses him off. And then uh, Vincent Price, James Mason, and Cary Grant would egg on. Peter Lorre to get him so pissed and he'd be like, fuck you stupid fucking <laughs> stop you just eat the piece of thing. It's, give me the dip. Give me the dip. <laughs> you know. So it was, I think the skit that we had had in our minds was that because of Peter Lorre's outrage, like the whole shoot goes to shit. Yeah, and it'd be like, and they're Hitchcock in the, would be like, let it roll. <laughs> let it roll. <laughs> and they'd be like in their big like Bond lair at the end of the movie. Like you know, it's almost almost like Austin Powers, where they're like there and everyone's assembled. And James Mason's giving his Doctor No speech of Doctor No, and Cary Grant's like, well, I don't, you know. And then everything just gets ruined. So we would go on for hours at nauseum doing these imitations. And it and was we because did that of for P- years. And it was because of Peter Lorre's outrage and his acting out that. That version of the movie never was, was canceled, and they recast cost their- overruns. <laughs> and because of that, the movie never got finished. They all went their separate ways, and they all and then it got recast with Sean Connery. Yeah, in the sixties, and that's how we like to remember it. And that's our that's our Alfred Hitchcock, Cary Grant, uh, Golden Age of Hollywood story that we would do uh, in the old days when we would hang. And that went on for years. I mean, we would we would improv that when we would. <laughs> We'd go to a diner and just start talking about again, like, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart's pit. And then we had an idea of them going to the video store, remember? And then getting pissed at the video well, store. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it was that we had a lot of spare time. We were uh, a precocious group. We were of, odd. Yeah. Uh, which, like, maybe a lot of people can identify with that. Listen to the show. Yeah, I don't know how many of them are <laughs> doing that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Casting Dr. No with a with collection of, of golden Grant age Hollywood. Well, it's because we could do the impressions of everybody. Yeah. That's why we were doing, you know, and then we, or we have to learn it. We have to learn a good Alfred Hitchcock because we can't, we have to have him in there. <laughs> or Vincent Price. Uh, Vincent Price. So, um, exactly. What do you want me to do in those scene here? So, um, it's this uh, book is based. This movie's based off a short story from 1942 called uh, "It Had to Be Murder." Maida, Maida. I can't ever do that accent. It's Maida. That New York City. It had to be Maida. It had to be Maida. 1942. Yes, by Cornell Woolrich. And AKA 
A.K.A. William Irish. <laughs> A.K.A. William Irish. In this he, well, he wrote, but he wrote under both names. Yeah, and uh, it's funny that later on, uh, there's a movie that I had watched a couple years ago called Witness to Murder from 1954 with George, George Sanders and Barb, uh, Barbara Stanwyck. That's basically the same plot, and that came out a month before Rear Window comes out, and it's her witnessing. Barbara Stanwyck in a rainy night looking over the, the the window and seeing George Sanders kill his wife. And then she's got to tell people. And it's one of these very low budget. It's it's a pretty good movie. But there's another movie called um, uh, called The Window from 1949, which I just taped off of Turner Classic Movies about two weeks ago, which I haven't gotten around to watching yet. And when we're researching this, that the, uh, that movie's also based off this short story. So there's been different carnations of it's of, it had to be made <laughs> of. from 1942. <laughs> and this is a thing that comes up again. The 1945, it, it has a little Christmas in it, and that's because I that's why I know it. There's a movie called Lady on a Train from 1945 with Dina uh, Dina Durbin and Ralph Bellamy, and it's a girl leaving. Think about how I just told you how I love. You know, being in in the shit, she's on a train uh, uh, going to Grand Central. She stops at 125th Street in Harlem, which is my stop every day. When they leave, she sees someone get murdered in an apartment. So she's got to she, she gets to Grand Central from takes, the train from the train, and it's that's hence the movie Lady on a Train. So she's trying to tell everybody that they saw a murder, no one believes her. So that she goes to 125th Street, she get, walks off the platform, and she's walking on the tracks to try to find out what apartment it was. You know, it's great. So this is just great fodder for me. Uh, and then jump to like 1990. Uh, I think it was on USA. Faye Dunaway made a TV movie called Silhouette, and it's got the guy who was Sledgehammer. Okay, you know yeah. what I mean? Who was also in Cobra? Remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He. I don't know if he's the bad guy in it, but it's it's uh, it's Faye Dunaway is, is <laughs> looking across the sea. That's a reference. <laughs> yeah. Some people aren't gonna, yeah, get. gonna get that. Like, Sledgehammer, but some people are. Yeah, a lot of yeah. So, um, so pat yourself on the back, Sledgehammer fans. <laughs> All those Sledgehammer fans out there. Um, he's in it, and it's about her witnessing a murder across the way. You know, so it's like this. This, and we could talk about later. Well, I mean, it's a fantastic device. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> don't get me wrong, it's fucking great. I mean, it's no. I'm not surprised. Yeah, because I mean, then they actually ended up. Re- it's not even really a remake, but they did Rear Window in the late 90s with Christopher Reeve. Yeah, an ABC for, movie. For television, because he was paralyzed I, at that point. And I feel like at that point, you know, no offense at all to Christopher Reeve, but at the time, since he was you know, wheelchair-bound, I think they were looking for something. Maybe they're like, we want to put him in a movie. He's like, I want to do something, but yeah. I'm very limited. So they were like, oh, why don't we fucking make Rear Window yeah, again? Yeah. And, you know, so, so, and I remember, I haven't seen it since, but I watched it when it came out. I remember liking it yeah. at the time, but I wonder... If that would have been fun to watch that for I this feel like to that see. Was when we were living together. Was that in when we were having our scandalous affair? <laughs> yeah. Uh, when we were freshman in college, I think. Yeah, you're right. So that would have been maybe we did watch it together when we were freshmen yeah. in, in the dorm room. And then, you know, a couple several years later in 2007, a movie that I have a particular fondness for. I yeah. Don't, I don't know if you do. Disturbia. Came Never out seen with Shia it. LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf and that other guy who's the bad guy, who the guy from Green Mile. Yeah, and it's about he's looking he's, at his neighbor, he's, right? He's like under like house arrest because <laughs> he did something bad. So he's got like a ankle bracelet, ankle bracelet yeah. on, and so he can't leave the yard or the house. And he, so he just kind of is like for the full summer stuck in his house. He's got a girlfriend, it's and I think too. the new guy moves in across the street, and uh, he thinks he witnesses some shit going down over there. It's a great, which is also very. Uh, 
Fright Night has a little bit of that because yeah. he's because the, I forget the character's name or and even the actor's name, but you know the the young guy is in his room and he looks through his window into the window of the new of the house where the new people just moved in. Chris Sarandon just moved in, and he witnesses some vampirism happening. <laughs> vampirism <laughs> with one of the great move, move, uh, horror movie just film eighties film music cues. But I think Brad Fidel is this beautiful rock guitar, like very sexy guitar thing happening while he's watching this like seduction of a of a woman across. So this idea of witnessing stuff, the voyeuristic aspect, because as a film viewer, we're voyeurs. Yeah, I mean, we're watching. We can get into that in a second, but to finish this up, yeah, I think before I even knew Hitchcock or Rear Window, I saw, which scarred the crap out of me. Maybe, and it might be my first exposure to Brian De Palma pre- it was pre-untouchable. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Body Double, yeah. and Body Double being like on maybe Movie Channel I had when I was little, and that movie is fucking crazy. Body Double, yeah. Well, there's also and Body Double's that. very much that's what happens in Body Double. He yeah. witnesses a murder across the way. I always say it's what's his face, but it's not what's his face. Um, uh, Bill Maher, yeah, it's <laughs> but it's not Bill the Maher. Bill Maher Bill lookalike. lookalike that was in a half a dozen movies. And he witnessed, and then he has that crazy Indian guy, and then it's like a point, and then by the end they have to go into the porn. It's well, oh, really watches something, but I think it's an old sisters, yeah, There's something going on. And they do it like a split screen in that Good, the classic uh, sister act. You mean? No, Sisters. Sisters. The, the, the Palma movie. Oh, Sisters. I'm thinking of the song. Sisters, <laughs> Sisters. Da, 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 da. Sister, have, I'm sure it happens in the Sister Act all the time. <laughs> oh, she, because she witnesses a murder in Sister Act. <laughs> she does witness so I, that's why I didn't. I don't remember what, what, the, what the thingy was. So maybe she'd witnessed the murder, and then that's how she had to run as a nun. But this uh, idea Nuns of, on the run. <laughs> you know, and then, look. There's, but then they, then they spoof the crap out of it. I mean, you know, Simpsons, does a, everybody does a spoof of this. But it is interesting that, like, you have that movie, Witness to Murder, uh, 1954, comes out a month before that has nothing to do with this. Yeah. But you wonder then if it is, like, one of those things where it's, like, you know, uh, Armageddon versus Deep Impact. Dante's Peak versus... It, volcano. Volcano. <laughs> you know, but, it's, but if you watch uh, Witness to Murder, it's very low budget. You can clearly tell, less from our eyes now, that these yeah. are studio sets. As this is, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, budget goes into rear window but then you know getting that again the lady on the train from 1945 that great movie and then this other movie which i haven't watched it called the window from 1949 which is now getting back to based off of it had to be murder i can't yeah, do yeah. <laughs> i can't murder murder see i can't do that yeah so uh, but the short story uh is basically just the the Jimmy Stewart witness, like looking out the window and witnessing the murder. Well, it's a short story. You can't get a lot in there. Yeah, yeah. There's no love story, and also some of the, you know, I I don't to my recollection of it because I read it many years ago. There's the not the some of the characters that he's watching. You know, it's di- different scenarios and maybe not as many people as he's watching out the window. And since there's no love story, there's no kind of correlation with like his relationship with Grace Kelly being you know, uh, projected onto these people. Like, the newlywed couple in the story, if I recall correctly, like, they're never home. It's yeah. not that they're, like, fucking, fucking all the time <laughs> with, <laughs> with the shades down. Um, and, it, and, he no has, nurse, and he right? has a male helper. Okay, I thought I don't there was recall no female if, nurse. I, I don't recall if he's, like, a nurse, but he does, there's a male character that comes and, like, does things around the apartment. Or and that's kind of like his Doyle the cop? That he talks to. Yeah, kind of. I think he's more like the nurse character. Um, And then they don't reference until the very end, which is the last line, that his leg is broke. They kind of leave that to why he's even, right? They allude to... 
And like he witnesses like a like one of the people that he watches is a single mother. Yeah. Who he speculates as a widow. Yeah. So it's like the single mother with a baby. And so he's like watching this plight of the single mother and these various characters and then there's this character which is in the movie, which is this guy who has uh, a sick wife and they don't necessarily there's tension between them. Sounds like my life. It's lovely. Maida. Um, so, and it's because it's a short story. So it gets published and then I guess Hitch gets it, likes it, but then he gives it over to his friend who he ends up working with quite a bit, um, John Michael Hayes, who was interesting, funny enough, he comes out of radio. He, was, he wrote a lot of, um, I think it was um, Sam Spade or, or Sherlock Holmes or those kind of mysteries, but he also wrote for Suspense, yeah. the radio show that I love. And funny enough, since we're talking about Hitch, uh, the premiere pilot episode for the radio show Suspense was probably to get attention to people to listen was they got Hitchcock to direct an episode and it was The Lodger, them doing... Which is, which is really fascinating because when he did The Lodger as a film, it was silent. So it was all visual. Yeah. Without sound. And this is and, like 1939, I'd say. And so Hitchcock then tackles The Lodger as a... As an audio play with no picture at all. Yeah, directs it. It's really kind of fascinating to see that juxtaposition of how this storyteller tells the story in completely two different mediums that are polar opposite. Because when he did it as a film, there was no sound. And he's he's credited to doing the first British sound movie, Blackmail. From like 1929 or so, he's the first one to do a, talk, a British talkie, yeah. which comes off the heels as and over he here, was, us doing the jazz singer. And he was very reluctant when sound came to cinema because he was very afraid that films yeah. were just going to become just shots of two people talking. I mean, that's what it happened. <laughs> so, so he get, he comes up out of it in a world, he, he, gets, he gets an education, uh, you know, he starts, he's born and raised in and around London, he gets various jobs doing clerical work, then he gets a job in a house that makes like uh, lettering, right? He starts yeah. doing lettering he for does, films. Yeah, like he does the, like the title cards. Yeah, and then he starts um, maybe doing different kind of assisting work, and then he graduates to doing directing. He starts directing films in the mid to late twenties, silent films. And I he, also think at some point he goes and he, when he's in Germany, he does like he goes to Germany and he makes films. Yeah, where, and he, but like he's not directing there. He's AD doing the title cards. Something. And he's doing some of the production design. And so he's He's getting a hand of this, this German expressionism that you and I talk about, particularly in Peter Lorre's Mad Love, about the German expressionism and how that affects, uh, come the 30s, this is what we talk about in Mad Love, that whole migration of a lot of European minds because they're leaving because of what's happening in Europe with the, the precursor of World War II, and then them all transplanting to Hollywood. That's why in the 30s you have that whole look of universal movies, that, you know, so Hitchcock then starts in England, starts making talkies with blackmail, and he does, you know, The Man Who Knew Too Much. He does um, The Lady Vanishes. He does The 39 Steps. Really well-regarded. I think The Lady Vanishes and The 39 Steps are regarded at the time and now as, like, some of the best in British cinema. Yeah, 39 Step is kind of like that the prototype of that. MacGuffin, right? That North by Northwest man, like average guy thrown into an extraordinary circumstances and having to like persevere and all that stuff. And And it's a lot of great secret agent. Was that secret agents also that same time that Sir John Gilgood and our old friend Peter Laurie's in that, and then Man Who Knew Too Much, the originals with Peter Laurie. That's where Peter Laurie learns his lines phonetically because he still speaks German. Um, But 
each one of these movies, it's 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 weird because they all have their own little thing. Where like Thirty Nine Stets has a has a you know, or or uh, or the Lady Vanishes has a little shtick, or not a shtick, or not. I wouldn't even call it a gimmick, but it's something that distinguishes each one. Yeah, you know. So then he gets more and more popular, and then in maybe the like Thirty Eight, I think it is, he comes to. They, you know, he gets a lure to Hollywood, and then that's where he does his first movie, Rebecca, with Laurence Olivier. And that takes place in England, but it's his first movie that, that they shoot in America. And then around that time, 39, is when he does Suspense, the radio show. He does The Lodger, the first episode. Suspense runs for, I'd say, another 16 or 17 years. It might run until, like, 1960 or 62, and it's a fabulous show, which we always talk about. And it really evolves differently from the pilot episode. So it's interesting that you have Hitchcock doing... The pilot for suspense, and then later on he he hooks up with the screenwriter named John Michael Hayes, who ends up writing for him. I think the five pictures he does with Paramount here, he does yeah. Vertigo, he does The Trouble with Harry, he does North by Northwest. He might do Catch a Thief, uh, he might do Psycho, but he no, gets I don't no. Think so he does uh, To Catch a Thief, Trouble with Harry, and the remake of The Man Who Know Knew too much. too much and this one. He doesn't do Vertigo. I don't think he does Vertigo. Okay, because Vertigo is, I think, the last one, and then after that is what? Psycho? Or there's a couple, or maybe The Wrong Man. There's a couple around there. Yeah. Or Strangers on a Train in Between, but these nice Technicolor uh, color movies he has with Paramount. So he gets like a, a kind of a, a, a little group together. And then another person who I'd love to bring up who probably should be in our, our, our Hollywood Golden Age Hall of Fame, this is one for the ladies, is Edith Head. Yeah. This costume designer who is like one of the most famous costume designers of all time. And she had she designed all the costumes for Grace Kelly by way of Hitchcock for this movie. And she's and really several other tons, Hitchcock movies. Yeah, she did all these Hitchcock movies. I think these these five she did a lot of Archie Hepburn's costumes for things like Roman Holiday and maybe even Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, she did a, a lot of the Road 2 movies. She's got a very good porn star name. She's got a very, yeah, Edith Head has a very good <laughs> porn star name. But she has this look that you'd see, I think it's the, uh, is it Monsters Incorporated? Is it uh, Monsters Inc.? You know, the little girl with the, she's got the short hair with the round glasses and she, you know, she's in one of these CSI and she has a, she has a lisp, but she yeah. gets a lot of work. She's a short actress. Mm-hmm. She kind of has her look of Edith Head. Yeah, but she, with those round she had like glasses. a, yeah, dark black round glasses with like a bowl haircut. And, uh, even to the point now, if you go look online, there is a really funny book where it's like the paper doll, Edith Head paper dolls. So you can get a book and you have your paper doll and you can cut out what outfits from her movies then you can put it on Grace Kelly or Jimmy Stewart or whatever. So Edith Head is, is amazing. And she worked up until I think her last movie is The Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid, which is like 82. But she did, I think, maybe all of Hitchcock Hitchcock's movies after this or or... Uh, yeah. Up until she's doing family plot, she's doing a lot of his stuff, and, yeah. you know. So she had a big uh, uh, influx into this, but the, this whole movie shot in one location. Yeah, it's shot and it's and it's all an indoor set, which is just amazing to wrap your head around that they that this is like you said the biggest set uh, as of Paramount had that's indoor. Well, I mean, uh, there's a lot. Like, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, in terms of like Edith Head, I think is a perfect example what I was talking earlier about like uh Hitchcock's command of the language of cinema. You know, like like to him costume <clears throat> design was as important as any other element of the of the film. Yeah. And so when he found Edith Head and there was a great collaboration of like what everybody wears does so even subconsciously, yeah, it does make a difference. Like you'll notice that 
for instance, uh, uh, Raymond Burr's wife, Thorwald. Yeah. Across Lars. the way, you know, like the nightgown that she's in, his wife. That's in the bed, yeah. Is the nightgown that Grace Kelly changes into, that she brings. Later on. Later on, just that she also has like a cover. Like a, sh- like not a shawl, you know, like, but like a Yeah, little... like a lacy yeah. thing that she that you put over her shoulders. But it's like, you know, and, and the costumes that. Uh... Well, that green Mrs. Lonely Hearts wears, isn't there something that. Where it's uh, the green outfit she wears a little later on. Uh, yeah, she wears Grace Kelly. Kelly wears because every everything. I don't correlate. even know how to, I don't even know how to really dive into this movie because there is so, so many layers. Things. Of... I mean, I guess maybe the. Okay, so in a nutshell, we have uh, a photographer who is a freelance photographer traveling around the world who has a broken leg, and yeah. we learn. That he's a photographer and how he breaks his leg through a single shot on a dolly that shows us him in a wheelchair, his broken leg in a cast, a broken camera, potentially where the accident where that camera and his leg got broken. Pans up. And then pans up and then shows other photographs that he presumably may have taken, which were other kind of catastrophic With other things. kind of broken cameras around. And then we see, like, more camera equipment, so we solidify, like, okay, yeah, like, he is a photographer. We see a negative of, like, a like a, a, like a woman co- cover it. shot. And yeah. then we see, like, the finished a fr- magazine frame, cover. A frame negative. Yeah. It's, like, an 8 by 10 of her or whatever. And then you see this, this magazine cover of, like, a Look magazine. So to indicate that was, like, the shot. That sold a which million magazines. All going back to what we were just saying earlier, which is like Hitchcock was very hesitant about sound in pictures because he was very worried about taking away what makes moving pictures unique, the way you can tell a story. And so Hitchcock's one of Hitchcock's greatest strengths is that he's able to tell exposition, elements of the story. Especially in this movie, watching this movie, there's long segments without any dialogue or yeah. anything. It's like you're watching little silent movie vignettes. Yeah. And they're just brilliant. So we have like that's – and then he's got nothing to do. You know, it's 54. He can't afford a television. <laughs> and, and it's also – we don't know. I think we, we see when it, when it looks like he's broken his pelvis – Possibly his femur, and it goes all the way down around his his, yeah, his yeah. the ball of his foot. So, and then when you pan up, you see that it looked like he was standing from the picture in the middle of a race, tra- like he walked out into the racetrack, and then a car was uh, was crashing. I would hope not because Jimmy Stewart's out there, <laughs> but you see a wheel coming at him, and so yeah. you lead you to believe that he broke probably you know his pelvis, everything down to the to the ball of his foot, and that's why he's in this. Yeah, you know, almost this one cast, and then this is 1954, so this is pre-air conditioned. If see if 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 what two things? If one, I think if if you had air conditioned in this world, and if you had the internet, this movie wouldn't take place because no one would be looking yeah. out the window; they'd be on their phones. And then if you had air conditioned, all the windows would be shut and the things would be drawn. But since this is the 50s, you still have ice men bringing blocks a, of ice during a heat wave. Yeah, so everybody's in got New York window. City, so everybody's you know, out there. Because we see that because we get a shot of the, the, the thermometer the, showing that, that might it's even like start. It might even start with the thermometer pan down to, to, to Jimmy Stewart pass that beads with, of sweat on his head. Beads of sweat pan down <laughs> to his leg, and then that's how you pan off his leg to the crotch to the camera, and then you have. Um, and so he's got this apartment that faces his windows face into a courtyard. Yeah, and a it's, New York City Greenwich Village courtyard. And that's interesting too because um, you knew somebody who lived. 
uh, in an apartment that in, in you forget that you have you, of course you have in apartment buildings in the city or anywhere you have front ones that overlook streets then you have other ones like this that that over it's the back apartment so this one yeah. overlooks a courtyard so there's this whole world that's happening within this little courtyard you know and sometimes you have to like walk through the building to get to the to this you know it's like sometimes to get there yeah. and all that uh, and as we discussed in earlier about our gritty eighties New York particularly discussions people end up going crazy when there's heat waves so like you know <laughs> kind of people are like on edge it's hot you know he's stuck in the i i, I don't know smells, if we establish how long smells bad yeah i don't know if we'd establish how long he's been sitting there but well, he only got like a week left right he's they say six weeks yeah he's got the cast on for six weeks maybe so he's at least in the cast for at least five or six weeks yeah because like because his publisher calls and, well, a publisher for a magazine that he works for calls and says, "Like this is your last week. You're getting the fucking sh- you're getting the yeah. cast off." And this today. was a scene, I guess, that they had shot. It was going to be the only scene that they were going to be outside the apartment. They yeah. shot it at this In guy's, the guy's office. office. Yeah. And then I think it was the screenwriter. It was like the assistant director. Oh, it was the assistant director who had worked with Hitchcock on a lot of films and was the guy that cast uh, the dancer across the way. And worked with the dancer. Yeah, so Hitchcock cast the principals, Raymond Burr, Raymond Burr's wife, uh, Jimmy Stewart, the people, you know, Grace Kelly around him. And then aside from that, I think it was, he just said to the assistant director, just cast. Yeah, so he, cast, fill it up. he cast like the newlyweds, a lot of the people. Mrs. Torso. A lot of the other the people. Dancer, in the, uh, yeah, Mrs. Lonely Heart, um, the, the composer, all these. Uh, so... And so he tells, <laughs> Hitchcock to him and says, what do you think about the script? And he's like, well, I really like the script, but. There's the one scene where we, we leave the apartment and we go. He's like, I don't think you need it. Yeah, it's, it lo- it takes away from or it it it's it takes away from the gimmick or you know. And then Hitch is like, Well, I don't know. And then they and went. So they screened. Did they screen like a a, a rough no, cut of it? No, it was or? like they were gonna go. According to the assistant director. Yeah. Then, the day came that they were gonna shoot it, and they had finished shooting at one location for the day, and I think the next day they were gonna go shoot at the office. And Hitchcock says to the assistant director, he's like, do you still feel that way about that? You uh, still feel that way about <laughs> it. And he's like, yeah, it's, I don't really think you, I don't think we need, I don't think we should leave the apartment. And he's like, okay, well then tell them we're not going to shoot that scene. Yeah. Like just call out, like we'll scrap it. Even though they built the set, they built everything. And, and they he, shot and he says, And he says like, no, we should still shoot it. Yeah. Um, and at the very least we'll use the audio that we take from it. So that becomes the phone call. It was they use the audio from what the, from the scene they shot so with the, the actor, yeah. with the publisher, and it becomes a phone exchange. That yeah. And you can tell them. that that the actor who's playing this publicist, that that was shot in a, a two, you know, it yeah. just sounds like he's on the phone. They give you that disguise. So the, the uh, ex- exposition there is that he's stuck there. He's got one more week left. You know, he's you see him like with a back scratcher trying to get itches under his cast. And then he's just stuck there looking out the window. And then you start seeing the people that because everyone's windows open because it's hot as balls. And then another thing which I don't understand is some people at, you know just don't close their don't draw their blinds. You know, my parents do it, too, at their house. They're in they're in the woods and they have the blinds. I'm like, honey. I'm, I'm talking so fast. I'm like, Mom, Dad, this is going to turn into like a movie like The Strangers. <laughs> you need to like, when it gets dark, pull your blinds. I don't want to see a guy standing out there with a rabbit mask on or whatever the fuck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in a, in, a, in a suit in some little girl with a chainsaw. So Jimmy Stewart starts looking out the window. This gets to the whole voyeur, yeah. Hitchcock, 
everybody, I love being a voyeur. One of the first things I loved doing when I worked in New York City was watching people. I used to have to wait for my train. I'd get out of work. I'd have a half hour before my train would leave. So I would sit down next to the escalator from Carlitos Way in Grand Central Station and just watch people. I used to love just standing by a window and watching people outside and going about their business. Um, the apartment I used to live in, Yonkers, that you helped me move into, my last apartment, it was in the shape of an L, uh, a U. And my apartment was the inside apartment that was like in the um, the breezeway. And I can look across and I could see the, the other side of the building and people inside. So I would see this guy, Frankie. He was a guy who lived in the apartment. He would drink every night, and he ends, ends up probably being me in 20 years. And he he would always be in his his you know his wife beater and his BBDs, and he would just sit on his couch, drink all night, and he would pass out. And he'd pass out drinking there. And I always been you know he's an elderly guy. I was like, oh my god, I feel bad for him. He didn't have an air conditioner. He left all his windows open with his lights on. So I'm always like looking through my kitchen window, seeing is Frankie okay? Oh, he's passed out over there, honey. You know. So it's like, I think we all have this idea of being a warrior. You know, looking at stuff. I mean, you live on the 44th, 42nd floor? Now, I live on the 39th floor. 39, ooh, 39 steps. But it's like, uh, it's, and you have a, you have a freaking, another thing which is scary as hell. You have a uh, balcony. A balcony <laughs> that's like, so go out on the 39th floor of a balcony looking down. It's like, I, I always find the whole voyeurism in Hitchcock, and, that's, and then him being the auteur, we can get to what that, that particularly means, is like he will tell the audience what to look at. Yeah. And it certainly becomes this great lesson in you, you cut to Jimmy Stewart and then you cut to a shot and then you cut to Jimmy Stewart reacting. And Hitchcock talks about you could have, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart sitting there looking at a kid, uh, uh, an elderly man giving a kid a balloon and cut back to Jimmy Stewart. He smiles. Or you could have Jimmy Stewart looking there and you can have like a girl uh, having sex with another guy. And you can cut back and have Jimmy Stewart. Same smile. Same smile, same shot, but it means a whole different other connotation. Like just because of what you're showing the audience. The juxtaposition of shots. Yeah, and it, that's what. The mise-en-scene of cinema. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, they talk a lot about uh, that being, you know, this being the perfect example of Hitchcock being like a subjective point a of view. A silent movie, you know, like that. Telling yeah. the shots. It's uh, it is it's so it's really interesting when you put it in the context of something like when we were just having the discussion about rope, how you like you would think the confines of doing a one location movie can really hinder somebody. Of course, there's a lot of great one location movies, yeah. whether it be you know a Night of the Living Dead or Twelve Angry Men, yeah, yeah. something like that. Or, yeah, but to make something that way. So so cinematic is really amazing. And uh, this idea of this guy confined to a wheelchair and his only real entertainment to pass the time. I mean, he could be. And, you know, he, he could has, read a book. He but. has no radio and he doesn't seem to have any TV in, in the apartment, too. And this is of the era of the 50s is when people were getting televisions in the homes. So you can almost even extrapolate, too, that it's like him watching. It's like people were watching TV. In that era. So well, it's like him it. looking I out mean, the window, looking at what channels. I mean, yeah. Every one of these things is like, you know, a movie or a television within the movie. I yeah. Mean, that is what he's watching. I mean, he's, just, he's watching these characters cross the courtyard and their little frames of the, their windows. And he's just wide. It was like having multiple screens, you know, yeah. screen within the so screen. So to his left, he's got a, a newlywed couple. It's, that uh, just move in. Yeah. And then you see that they pull this, the, the blind down, the shades, which indicate they're going to be having a lot of, they're going to be balling all the time. And then across the way on the, on the first floor, there's a, 
a female sculptor who's an artist who's a little older. And then next to her on the first floor is this woman who uh, lives alone and she looks very depressed and she drinks a lot. Above her on the second floor is Raymond Burr's apartment. He lives with his infirm wife and he's a traveling salesman. Uh, uh, to the right of them is a, uh, or, or a, uh, next to him uh, on the second floor above the lady artist is the Mrs. Torso, a 17-year-old ballerina dancer who's hot as hell and she's doing all, you know, she doesn't think anyone's seeing her so she's dancing around, you know, half naked or she's bending over down at the waist, you know. It, and this is another thing is like Hitchcock, it's amazing what he's getting away with in the 50s with censor wise because yeah. it's because it's Hitchcock I think for one and two because his m- m- movies are making you know this bulk loads of money because you know he's having shots of her the the 17 year old you know bending looking down in the fridge where you're you know it's not how a lady quote unquote would bend <laughs> you know what I mean it's like a guy yeah, you know a guy yeah. it's a, something a guy would look at but I'm sure she was told you know since you, you know, you're not thinking of being ladylike because you're in your own apartment, Ben, like this. And then this is Jimmy Stewart looking at that. I mean, let's put it plainly. Hitchcock was very perverted. And we can go down that road of how perverted he is, but he's like a guy. He, and then he's, I think he also had a lot of repressed stuff with women and stuff like that, which we, it's another conversation. That's a whole other. Yeah. But he he likes setting these things up. Just um, have the, which is probably the, aside from, the Raymond Burr character is probably the most important person of, of the that lives across the way is the composer because yes, uh, which is we'll talk about the sound of the movie because it's so uh, so unique in and of itself. And then above Raymond Burr is this couple that have a dog. Yeah, uh, uh, who this married like, couple yeah, who has a dog, a tiny dog that because they're on the third floor. They let the dog out into the courtyard through a pulley system or yeah, a basket, in a little a basket, and it's kind of like the the couple who never had children. So the, the the little dog becomes their kid, and it's like something I'd love to show my little dog how to do. But I don't think he'd get back; <laughs> he'd be too scared to get down in the basket and come back in. And then, yeah, they lower to have him go to the bathroom. They lower him down into the courtyard to go to the bathroom. And then in the courtyard, there's concrete, but then on the side, there's a whole bunch of rose petals or roses, rose bushes that we learn that Raymond Burr tends to. So that must be his rose bushes, which is very. It was. Is interesting because I think at some point in the just movie, gives him a hobby, I guess it, it does. But he's only got like it kind of implies that he's not there for very long. Yeah, he says he like was there for five sh- months. It's a short, it's a six month lease. He's been there for five months, and then since he's a traveling salesman, he leaves a lot and he comes back. So I guess that would leave you to indicate that maybe the bushes were already there and he's just tending to them. Now. Yeah, or that he just it, it's an example of him trying to get out of his apartment while he's there because he can't deal with his nagging wife. So he yeah. goes down there and just tends his stuff. There is I. I, we, it could be a good idea to get into this now, just throw this out there. There is this counter theory, which I love, that I think even Hitchcock and maybe Peter Bogdanovich, when he interviewed him, infers that the reverse of this is that Raymond Burr is actually the victim in this story because take a, take away that he, of course, murders his wife. But spoiler. If you, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> but if you watch Raymond Burr, how Raymond, you know, the only reason Raymond Burr is minding in his own business, he's in his apartment. If you've also noticed, too, the shots of his wife – you don't get the exact impression that his wife uh, is, uh, you know, she is ail, uh, uh, and firm and, and frail and, and, and maybe bedridden and is an invalid. But she also, you kind of get a very, like, almost like a sympathy for Raymond Burr because she's mocking him at one point. Yeah, yeah. He gives her a, a, a flower, and, like, he brings her breakfast in bed with a flower. She takes out and, like, throws it down. And you can tell he's like, well, why are you doing that? And then later on, he's on the phone and she mocks something. So you're really like, oh, poor Raymond Burr here. But then he ends up going and killing his wife, and that ends up negating <laughs> everything. But then later on, it's like, um, 
for me, it's like, he, this is another spoiler alert, he ends up killing the dog later. But at, that's, that's where he crosses the line. If he didn't kill the dog, it's like, because at the end of the movie, when he finally confronts Jimmy Stewart, he's like, what do you want from me? <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, I don't, don't have, have, I don't I don't have ha- money. I don't have money. Yeah. Like, so he's almost the victim here. He's like, well, and he doesn't come over. He doesn't like, he's not like he's going to try to, he's like, answer me. And, and then Jimmy Stewart's not answering him. So it's like, he's almost, the, if you just left me alone and mind your own business, yeah. you know, so. And one of the interesting, not one of, probably the most interesting thing about this idea of watching the people across the way is that in a lot of ways, they all represent something to do with uh, romance and relationships and how uh, what's going on with Jimmy Stewart and his relationship with Grace Kelly, which is that she's a, she's like a, a well-to-do, like Upper East Side, uh, you know, woman on the town, fashionista. And he's like this—he's like this photographer who lives down in the East Village, and she's madly in love with him. And he's very reluctant to 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 get married because he doesn't want to be tied down. He he likes to go out with his job and yeah, you travel know, the world, travel the world, and do his photography. So to him, marriage seems like you know like hell to him. And like so when the he, Raymond Burr relationship. So when he looks out the window, we see the composer trying to do a song who's frustrated by his current predicament because he's got writer's block. And in a lot of ways, that's Cary Grant right now. Jimmy who's Stewart. Like, I, I mean, it's Jimmy Stewart right now, stuck in his apartment, yeah. you know, having difficulties. We have, uh, you know, he, he, when he's on the phone with his uh, agent he, or, or the publisher. publisher, he's saying, you know, like, you know, look out the window. And then we see the guy, his, the the composer looking out the window. Yeah. He's like, well, you know, and the, and the publisher's like, well, you know, you're going to grow up and you're going to be all by yourself. And then we see the- Mrs. Lonely Heart. Mrs. Lonely Heart, who's this woman who's, I don't know, maybe approaching middle age. <laughs> yeah. You know, hard to tell because all we see is- I'm sure they're supposed to like, she's 40 in the movie, but it's like, she clearly looks like she's older and she's, yeah, she's drinking every night and, and sad. She's lonely. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, and then we have- you know, Raymond Burr's marriage. And when he's talking, when he thinks about marriage, he looks at that and then we can get into the whole sound idea because the amazing use of sound design, which is when he's, when we introduce that aspect and he looks at them in relation to like, you know, what am I going to come home at the end of the day? And she's going to have a, a wife uh, and I'm going to hear the washing machine and all this stuff that what he, when he's talking about that, we see Raymond Burr and his wife and his wife being a little bit bitchy to him. Yeah. And the sound that we hear are sirens. We hear and sirens the, or a <laughs> boat, like a boat horn. It's <laughs> just like, like warning. Yeah, it's, warning. Yeah, it's all diegetic. You know, and then you have, when you have like uh, this torso or, or the dancer, you know, that in a lot of ways is represents, I think, what he imagines what's going on in Grace Kelly's life. Away from him, which is that like there's She's a million, guys there's a lot yeah. of suitors. I mean, we never really see, we see the dancer turn away guys, but this idea of like there's all these guys that are chasing her and all this stuff, and she can do whatever she wants. And a, and then if we look at the old woman uh, down on the bottom floor, the the, the one who's the, the sculptor. Yeah. I mean, it's like she's an artist. He's an artist, and she's now growing old. She's got a hearing aid, and she's like kind of. Just by herself, she falls asleep yeah. like, on the thing, making this you know, weird. Th- What's that supposed to be? You I know? mean, that could that easily could be Jimmy. Stewart. And you have in the fifties. I mean, you know, Grace Kelly is really the proto woman in the fifties, where she's 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 not a housewife.
wife. She's career oriented. She's hot as balls. She has a successful job. She, I think, comes from money, but not just that she comes from money. She has a job that is successful. Uh, so, and she's not a bitch. She's not entitled. Uh, she, and then like you're saying, she's head over heels for Jimmy Stewart. So Jimmy, it's like almost like, you uh, really don't understand Yeah, you know, But you do <laughs> from a sense where I'm sure maybe guys and girls in this light, you've confronted with like, Hey, this is the one. And then you don't know if you want it. You're, you want to still be single. You want to play the, you know, you don't know if you want to commit or you want to say a bachelor or a bachelorette, but you know, I mean, there's a famous, um, very famous, uh, restaurant in the city that's still famous here. 21. She brings 21 to him at some point, you know, she she yeah. brings the food to him and feeds him, and and but still Jimmy Stewart's like, well, you know, and it's he gets a little mean to her, I think, and she has a very good patience with him. But there's a conversation. He's like, well, you know, have you ever been up in a in a, in a DC ten in the middle of the wind trying to stay cold at fifty warm at fifteen thousand feet? She's like, no, and he's like, and you're gonna dress like that in the jungles with your high <laughs> heels, you dumb bitch and and she's like i would dress this you know it's like she's kind of he's kind of being unfair but he's trying to drill the point home is like you know you think well i think it's a defensive yeah it's a yeah and it's a life he's like you gotta are you gonna be able to equate to this life he's trying to push her away and it's funny because the only time you get to him give her the proper googly eyes is when she almost puts herself she almost well that's it yeah no and that's and he's like you're fucking mine now bitch yeah (laughs) but it's not until she Becomes adventurous, puts herself in or, or shows him that she can be adventurous. You know, yeah. like in the, the that he like realizes like, oh, like, she's the one because he's adventurous. Yeah, and she thinks, and he thinks that being with her is going to be just going to like parties and, and you know, yeah. like he's going to be stuck. And, and especially if she's making a crap load of money, maybe he thinks is he going to be like Mr. Mom? He'll sit just at home now, and you know, and just, she kind of says that to him. What's wrong with just? Getting a magazine and becoming a local photographer, or doing stuff around here where he likes to do, yeah. take on the world and f- travel. He wants to see the world, and but he has seen the world. So not only do we look out into the courtyard and see like these different reflections of what could be for Jimmy Stewart, or reflections of like maybe his current relationship and all that stuff, but the sound design in this movie is uh, really unique, completely diegetic, and interesting. I mean, we have. I mean, it says. Uh, Franz Waxman is accredited with doing the score, and he's of course a, a like an amazing classic uh, film composer who did things like The Invisible Man yeah. and Bride of Frankenstein. He did Rebecca for Hitchcock. He did the music for Philadelphia Story. He did Suspicion for Hitchcock. Yeah, a couple of Hitchcock. He, he did the Spencer Tracy, uh, Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. He did the Paradigm Case for Hitchcock. He did Sunset. Boulevard and Stalock 17. We brought him up last week on Pee Wee because that was Danny Elfman talking about his influences, I think maybe specifically in life, but then on the Pee Wee Herman soundtrack of Bernard Herman and Franz Waxman. Yeah. And Waxman only does the title track on this. Which is a swinging jazz. Yeah. And tune. In, in the first shot of the movie, since we're talking about it, is it is literally just the frame is Cary uh, Grant's window at the or full. Jimmy Stewart. I'm sorry, I just said Cary <laughs> Grant again. They're interchangeable. Yeah. Um, and you see him pulling the blinds up, and then yeah. that's the, the and this really and it's also remember the fifty. It's the swinging fifties, the bebop, the big band era of uh, you know the forties is going away, and you're getting these smaller distilled bebop bands, and it's that swinging. Yeah. You know, so that you and get a lot of that. And it's supposed to be down in Greenwich Village, which so is the se- yeah jazz center of that era where you get. All the cold training represented miles Davis. And of course, that opening shot with the window, you got the blinds being open, which is supposed to kind of simulate 
the curtains being drawn at like the a Prometheum stage at the old uh, either a live show or even at the movies they would have the curtains that would open. Yeah. So um, so Waxman only does this that and whatever's at the end, which might still be the same uh, same tune. piece. Yeah. But then the only other piece of music that he writes for the movie is this song that we find out later becomes Lisa, which is which is Grace Kelly's uh, name and uh, character's name. But oh, Jimmy Stewart pronounces her Lisa the whole movie. But uh, this is a piece of music that this is the piece of music that the composer yeah. across the way in the courtyard is writing. So. Through the week, the week, or no, her, her, however long this takes, the, we, the, the story. Yeah, we see if the, the, this piece of music from Inception. Him doing scale, and that's another thing too. Like the scales. What is it when you see uh, one part? He's looking across. I think maybe when he's also talking to the producer or his, his Hitchcock's there, like winding a clock or something. Yeah, you have the Hitchcock cameo of him in the composer's um, um, uh, little studio apartment, winding a clock, and looks back at the guy playing at the piano. But I think when Jimmy Stewart's on the phone to his to the publisher about his next assignment, you hear people practicing scales, and you look at. You know, there's no music there when he's looking at like Raymond Burr. Yeah. You know that. You know, and, and it's the evolution of them him fleshing the song out, the composer to the end when he gets the song and it becomes a hit. hit the song Lisa, uh, Waxman had just won an Oscar for a great movie, Place in the Sun, with Elizabeth Taylor and um, uh, Montgomery Cliff, which is a very good uh, uh, thriller who done it. And I think that there was a piece of music that he didn't use there that he re. Uh, recycles and re uh, yeah. re uh, re records, and that's what I think he uses this Lisa for this picture here. But this one piece of music and the evolution of it also is kind of in juxtaposition uh, and, and representing kind of Grace Kelly and Jimmy Stewart's relationship. Yeah, I, you know when we first see uh, Grace Kelly, it's when another, he's asleep yeah. and she he, she he wakes up and she's in the apartment and she kind of comes forward at him. I don't think we hear anything. And then I think that discussion you know, all the You them, know what happens is all the first shot, you hear all the diegetic sounds. Yeah, diegetic, yeah, diegetic, we, Blake and I talk about. Diegetic is a film term meaning uh, it's it's just the sound. If you walk out on the street, you hear everything around you, that's diegetic sound. If it's you, the film, it's the sound that's within the film, yeah. within the world of the film. So, you know, the music that this composer is writing is both the th- the music of the movie, but it's coming from within the movie as opposed to a score from outside of the movie. Yeah, if you get like the... the like the, a traditional film score is considered non-diegetic because it's not being played by somebody in the movie or on the radio. Yeah. So when you have Jimmy Stewart listen to everything, it's the first uh, glimpse you get of, of Grace Kelly, which is also uh, first person you see her looking directly at the camera coming in for a very intimate close-up. All the sound fades away. Yeah. And it's then, and then it's almost they slow motion it too. They do an effect, and then the two of them kiss, and there's no sound, except then they start talking. So it's almost I like think the world that slips might away. Be where the scales happen, but then when the twenty one stuff happens, and she she goes into the kitchen, and when she, and she comes brings out, the food in, that's when we start hearing the song being fleshed out on piano. Yeah, and she's like, "Oh, what's that beautiful music?" And then because like thou, that's we're kind of establishing that as like the theme. To their relationship, and that also ends up in the end of the movie. When you said, by the time that guy, the composer, fleshes out that song, it ends up saving Miss Lonely Heart. Uh, yeah. You know, every it all has a a, a particular. But uh, it's purpose. also when Grace Kelly goes up into the apartment, Raymond Burr's Raymond Burr's apartment, and this is the moment that 
when you were just saying Jimmy Stewart falls in love with her. Yeah. That's when we hear this music fleshed out the most up to that point. Him playing like the two. And when we hear this and we're watching these horrible visuals of Raymond, like him being like, you know, Jimmy Stewart being worried and then Raymond Burr coming in and then she's yelling, Jeff, Jeff. And Raymond Burr's manhandler. Manhandler. We hear this beautiful piece of music, which is in complete contrast to the visuals. But that's also the moment that Jimmy Stewart has the realization that he's in love with her. Yeah. So it also is playing as their love theme because this is that moment. Yeah. Where he he fall he he does realize his love for her he falls in love with her head over heels he is worried for her so we have this weird juxtaposition of this horrible thing happening but it's also the thing that cements his, her his love for her and so not only uh, you know within my book and stuff we talk a lot about playing against action and how that can be a powerful thing in cinema so this love theme playing over this horrible action is doing something for the viewer. Well, it's fabulous. But, it, but it's also the love theme for what's happening in their relationship in the mind of Jimmy Stewart, which yeah. is like he is in love with her now. And so it becomes that love theme. And like you said, it also affects the other people in the courtyard. This woman, Miss Lonely Heart, who's kind of given up. We've, we've seen her try to have go pick up a guy. And she brings like a young Paul Reiser over. And then, <laughs> and then he, he – she. It's it's such a sad – her little – her little uh, arc is sad because she's by herself pantomiming, having a date, and then it, it, she feels how stupid it is, and then she just drinks herself to sleep, and then you, you see her getting next scene all dialed up, and then you just see she goes out and only goes to, like, it looks like the dive bar across the street that we could see waiting to pick somebody up. We think she's waiting there for somebody, but she's taking several shots before she's she's pre-gaming it before she even leaves the apartment, and we're... We're guessing it's probably for her to just get the liquid courage. Loosen up a little bit. Yeah, and then when she comes home, she brings someone home who's clearly a little younger than her. He's chewing gum. She's probably got him back from the bar. He tries to really just no small talk wants to start, you know, making out with her and doing it. She doesn't want that. She pushes him off, maybe even slaps him. And he's like, well, F you, I'm out of here. And then she cries. And then it leads up to the end where it looks like she's going to take these sleeping tablets and kill herself. And we're like, oh, yeah. God. That she hears this music. And that saves her. And that's the same time that coincides with. The first, like you're saying, the first time we ever hear this music, it coincides with Jimmy Stewart's on the phone with, uh, who does he, he calls somebody, but he's not on the phone with the police. But since he has the line open, he can't hang up and call the the apartment to, I think he calls his friend Doyle's house to tell yeah, him to come maybe over. he's talking to the babysitter yeah. at that point. So he has, he has the phone and it's engaged because he's calling that thing. So when he sees Raymond Burr come home. He can't just hang the phone up and dial nine one one. He's and he's so he's like he can't even call for help. And then so he's so much helpless in that same scene. And that's at the same time when Miss Lonely Heart stops and looks out the window. She's not going to kill herself. So got a lot going on there. The 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 guy the 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 actor who's playing the composer's real name is Ross Bagdarazian, B A G D A S A R I A N, and he's a real songwriter and he's credited which. Um, I had known for years as the creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah, he and was in, Dave Seville. Yeah, and in 1958, this is 54 at Rear Window, in 1958, he premieres the Chipmunk song, and we all know people our age, and probably people, because uh, they they've done recent movies, but all through the 60s, that's all. That's this guy who did all the, hitch, uh, the Chipmunks stuff. Yeah, he created the Chipmunks, he wrote the song Witch Doctor. Yeah, so it's um, funny you think he's, he's up there trying to press <laughs> time. But he also wrote his, his first hit, which he didn't write for Rosemary Clooney, but then Rosemary Clooney had a hit with it. Was he wrote "Come Out of My House"? 
Really? Come yeah. on up to the house, the house to come up? Uh? Yeah. The one that I'm going to give you candy. Oh, is that? Okay, I'm come thinking. Come out of my house, my house. There's a, there's a. give you everything. There's a song I have that, uh, that, that uh, of all buddy Liberace plays. Like, come, you're going to come up to the house, the house to come up, uh, come up well, to the yeah, house, the house to come up. Well, it must be a play up, because yeah, yeah. that's the same kind of. Uh, um, so, it's, it's, so you, it's all these little side stories, which are really funny. Then you have, rounding out the cast, uh, we have Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly, she's only been in a couple movies. Uh, hot as hell. Hitchcock loves her. She, he, she works with him. The last movie they do together was um, they had just finished. Catch a Thief, maybe? No, I don't think they did. That's the last movie she does with him. She just done. Oh, with, uh, Dial in for Murder. Dial in for Murder. I thought you were talking about the last movie. The, no. Like the last movie he did, she no. did with Hitchcock. You were talking about the, the, the movie previous, before. The previous the movie. movie was Dial in for Murder, which is Hitchcock trying to do 3D, which is interesting. Which is another 50s. almost almost completely one location. Yeah, movie. and I got that confused because I was thinking there's an episode of Suspense, the radio show, where they did. Uh, I thought it was Dial in for Murder, but Maida. it was Maida. <laughs> but it was actually Sorry Wrong Number. Mm-hmm. They, that was a, a, a something that they wrote first for Suspense, starring Agnes Moorhead, and it was so famous and did so well. They did it so many. They did it a couple times. They ended up then translating that into a movie, and Sorry Wrong Number turns into a regular movie. But Hitchcock did Dial in for Murder with her and Ray, Lam, Ray Milan, Miland, the last movie. Brings her to do this. She had a chance at the time to do uh, on the waterfront with with uh, Humphrey Bo- um, Humphrey Bogart with Marlon Brando <laughs> and Carl Molden and Rod Stagger. Completely different movie. And that's they're going to be shooting that in New York on locations. But then she decides, and I, I don't think she really wants to, but she kind of uh, uh, begrudgingly agrees, but decides it was the right decision to go to L.A. to make Rear Window on a set that's supposed to be in New York City. But Hitch doesn't really even give her like a choice. He's like, you're, you know, you're you're show up to see Edith Head that's getting fitted for my next movie and she's like oh okay as if yeah you know well, he was very possessive yeah so I mean, he that's had, a whole other yeah his he has this thing with blondes and you know they, they made women, a movie about uh they made two well they did the that girl the girl you're talking about with about tippy hedron and tippy hedron with uh to- toby jones playing hitchcock and showing which was made for maybe hbo or yeah, somebody about during the birds which is based by on a book which i have and I haven't, I have. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> but there's, it's, uh, I forget the, what the name of the book is. But there's a book that somebody wrote about Hitchcock's relationship with the Hitchcock blondes, yeah. and the women in his movies, and it's, and like the stuff about Tippi Hedren is what that movie is based on, where you see him just really, and you know, I, who knows what. Only Tippy Hedren knows the truth, <laughs> at least her her perspective of what the truth is. I mean, it seems like all the stuff, all the Me Too stuff that everybody is up in arms about now. Like you know, if if you're gonna not watch art, you know, by people that have done horrible things, it's then a, you we way back. then we wouldn't be watching Hitchcock movies anymore. And, and and not just to throw Hitchcock under the bus, but there's a lot of people back then. You can yeah. blanket. You have to be, you know, well. But so Hitchcock had an obsession. I mean, he was married in the late 20s to, I think her name was Alma, and it was kind of his collaborator who would also yeah, have a role. She was an editor and like like literally the woman behind the man. Yeah, and they did a movie called Hitchcock with uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren about that relationship, and that might be why they're doing Psycho. And uh, she was with him for how many years? But Hitchcock, then I, that's why I think he has this sexual frustration where he likes women, he likes dirty jokes, he has that very much that British style humor, uh, and he his he likes. Which, blondes. by the way, we were just talking about those 
Paper Dolls? Like no, no the, like, <laughs> you're the, doing, you're like, doing... <laughs> like the two movies that come out at the same time. Oh yeah, yeah. Those two movies came at the Toby Jones and the oh Hitchcock and, and yeah, the, and, and Anthony the, Hopkins girl. movies came out at exactly the same. Correct. Time. Yeah. So he his he he goes through different cycles of which you know of girls he likes, and this is the era he grabs. Um, uh, Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly at the time was a very liberated woman in a sense where. She didn't mind having flings with people. I think she was single at the time. She ends up marrying the what is it the the, the prince the prince of Monaco, and she leaves acting entirely to go become a princess in Monaco. And then she dies tragically, I think, in the early '80s in a car accident in Monaco. And it's this big thing how upsetting it is. But she there she had an affair on the last movie with Ray Milland, Ray Millard Milland on Dial in for Murder. So. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's wife, Gloria, who at the time was kind of, you have this era where, you know, even though she's not an actress, her the wife could be famous too. You have that a little bit with uh, Ronald Coleman and his wife. And Jack Benny had a TV, sh- had a radio show that went into TV. And in the TV show, they, had a, they did a lot of jokes where his next door neighbor was Jimmy Stewart and Gloria. So he'd go over and bother them and Gloria would play herself in, in these. So you, so... People knew who Gloria was. She was, you know, Jimmy Stewart's wife. So she was very nervous on this set because uh, Grace Kelly was very young, very attractive, and everybody was in awe of her on this set, and she knew how to take care of herself. And I'll say, I mean, the intimate close-ups of them kissing and stuff are pretty steamy. Yeah, she's, you know, and then... I mean, they're very, it's very sensual. Or real, almost realistic. And Jimmy Stewart, it almost like, you know, Jimmy Stewart's a little older than her at this point. It's not out of the realm of possibility they'd be together, but... It almost takes him back to his bachelor days. So Gloria, Jimmy Stewart's wife, was very worried about making sure Grace, you know, wasn't going to go, you know, mess around. But so she's like a sex pot on 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 set, and to the point where he, Hitch is having Edith head, you know, dress her to to look a certain way, and every shot has to be this way. So that's that cast, and also you have uh, Thelma Ritter, uh, who might get nominated. She plays the. It's the old days where you'd have the. The insurance company, whoever is insuring Jimmy Stewart because he broke his leg, they have a nurse coming over every day to see what the the uh, prognosis or the the, yeah. uh, the progression is if he's and better. I guess so that he doesn't get worse or you yeah, know, she's help there him along. giving and him. She, uh, what, she, she put, plays the Shirley Booth like Hazel kind of character, you know. I mean, she does her that character has uh, a lot of uh, a few different functions and it brill- brilliantly executed. It kind of brilliantly written as well that character. And that she's, uh, she kind of, uh, she, 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 that character provides exposition. You know, this is how we find out about uh, Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly and how he doesn't want to get married is through their exchanges. She's also a bit of, uh, she provides foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Right in the beginning, her, her first scene, she's like, you looking out this window is not going to end well. Yeah, and she she talks starts talking about her having premonitions, and I have a premonition of this and that, and yeah, it's, it's very very really good dialogue. Again, the reason I brought up that that screenwriter that took the short story, John Michael Hayes, since he wrote for radio, you could hear the dialogue's very pithy, very to the point, and he's able to cleverly conceal a lot of exposition through the dialogue to. Because when you're doing radio, you have to have everything through dialogue, you know. Yeah, yeah. So and know. she provides a lot of the comic relief. Yeah, which, which is, is funny. Which is she's great at. Yeah, she's not tired. And then the other guy, Wendell Corey, is and she's got a little bit of sass. Yeah, which is nice. That, that's, <laughs> that's that's why I said she's kind of the Shirley Booth, kind of a Hazel kind of a character. The last guy, the, the around the block, Doyle, is played by Wendell Corey, and that's like 
Jimmy Stewart's old friend, who we learn is that Jimmy Stewart was probably in the war uh, in the in the context of the movie. Jimmy Stewart was probably in the war as a combat photographer and was assigned to this guy's squadron. This guy was a bomber pilot, and they flew over Europe together. And then he alludes to that Wendell Corey, the, the saying, you know, if I if when if I didn't take chances, you wouldn't have got those shots that made you famous. So that would indicate that. While flying, they took you know chances they shouldn't have taken, and it, it gave Jimmy Stewart the the chance to be able to take some really exciting photos, which probably made his career. And in real life, we've talked about Jimmy Stewart was actually a combat pilot in World War II and flew bomber missions as a pilot in like B twenty B seventeens over Europe. Yeah. And that's pretty crazy to think that if you go watch the Memphis Bell and movies like that, where I think it was you'd have to fly 25 missions and then your tour would be up. And there's a very low rate of people who were able to fly, fly 25 in a row because there was such – it's kind of like in World War II where the idea behind it was they may have better technology than us, but we're able to produce so much more we can just overwhelm them by numbers. Yeah. So we were just throwing tons of bombers up there, and who cares if we lost 40% of them. We're still – getting the job done, carpet bombing, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just, it's crazy to think a lot of these guys, there's a Netflix series called, what, uh, Four Came Back or, or Something Came Back, and it's about the the Hollywood directors that went to the war uh, and came back and did stuff for the war, Frank Capra and John Ford maybe, and it's a fairly recent Netflix series that they just did. But you forget about a lot of these guys doing this kind of shit during sure. World War II. On, on a, like a movie trivia uh angle of this character that uh, Wendell Corey plays. You the, know, the, at, Detective Doyle. Detective Doyle, you know, we did last October with Mighty Mike Vanderbilt, we did Halloween. Yeah. And Halloween, of course, has the Jimmy original Curtis, which was the daughter of Janet Lee, who is in Psycho. Uh, Donald Pleasance's character, Sam Loomis, I think is named after the love interest in Psycho. Yeah, Loomis, uh, and I didn't even pick up on to it, uh, on it until this viewing. Tom Doyle, the little kid that Jamie Lee Curtis's babysitting's character's name is Tommy Doyle. And after this guy, <laughs> after Doyle here, and then because we couldn't figure out if it was uh, Martin Balsam plays the PI in the original Psycho. If it yeah, was he's Arbogast. 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 So, um, and. Uh, so that you get all the yeah you get all your little inspiration there from hit different hitch movies. Yeah. So that's basically the, the 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 table set for you there is that he's there watching stuff and then you see this progression of he witnesses Ray, Raymond Burr. Now that's another thing too. At some point, which is the night of the murder, at some point Raymond Burr ends up killing his wife, and he lives in a two bedroom or a one bedroom apartment where you could see Raymond Burr's living room and then you could see the bedroom and then the shades are drawn in the bedroom. A murder evidently happens, and during this rainstorm this night, which is another thing we can get to the set, but he, Jimmy Stewart wakes up, and he's looking. He's watching Raymond Burr leave a couple, uh, three or four times during the night. With, yeah, like with a, two or three in the morning. Yeah, with a, with a rain jacket and a hat. It looks like with his attache traveling uh, tra- salesman suitcase, it looks like, for me, Raymond Burr's motions that he's leaving with it heavy, and then he's coming back, and it's quite light. And then, so, and then he's trying to figure out what's going on the next day. The, you know, the shades are covered all day, and then it's, I think it takes a day or so before the shades are drawn in, the, in Raymond Burr's bedroom. But then you see that the, the mattress is, you know, is pulled up with, you know, the, the sheets are gone. Something's happened there. And this is when Jimmy Stewart starts speculating that he killed his wife. Um, two things for you, Blake. One is at some point during that rainstorm, you hear a glass 
break and a scream. Do you think that's supposed to indicate that that's her being murdered or that's something else happening within the courtyard and then that's just supposed to be the... the, the like symbolism. Yeah, symbolism of... I don't know. That's a good you know, question. You know, the... Because he doesn't hear that. It's while he's sleeping, I think. I think. Yeah. But then while he's sleeping is when we see... Which is another thing I don't understand. Yeah. At six in the morning is that he, you see Raymond Burr leave his apartment with a girl dressed in black. With a female, yeah. Is that the girl he's having an affair with? Yeah. This is a part of the plot that I find a little bit confusing. Because we realize I were to believe that he, he Raymond Burr brings his late earlier in the scene or two earlier in the script, Raymond Burr brings his wife breakfast in bed and then he leaves. She belittles him. He leaves. I would think Raymond Burr shuts the bedroom door. He picks up his phone and he calls somebody. I, I would think he's calling maybe his girlfriend and he's chatting with her and that's when the wife gets out of bed, comes and confronts him and then laughs and belittles him. Probably saying something like, oh, you have a girlfriend? Who's going to love you? You know, something like that. Some shit. So I was thinking maybe later on, because we learned that, that he evidently sends somebody upstate with the yeah. truck and gets a telegram it's, back. It's, it's tough because it's a lot of, some of this does come off for me slightly contrived in that it, it really is, it's really, sole, it's only sole purpose is really uh red herring <laughs> yeah you know for the audience it's one of the few things that the audience sees that jimmy stewart doesn't see which is that he leaves with this woman in the middle of the night uh but we see it we uh, the audience yeah. sees it but jimmy stewart doesn't see and that's it. another device by hitchcock hitchcock will like we said we'll show jimmy stewart then show what jimmy stewart's looking at well, then we'll get the reaction shot to Jim, jimmy stewart but then also jimmy hitchcock for the suspense We'll show the audience something that Jimmy Stewart doesn't see, so the audience knows something that Jimmy Stewart doesn't know to bring the suspense level up to see, yeah. oh, when is Jimmy Stewart going to discover what we already know? You know, I, showed us. You know the... I'm torn when it comes to suspense because in suspense. general, as, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a narrative uh, device, because yes, it look, nobody did it or has done it better than uh, Hitchcock, even though Hitchcock... Claims wages of fear, which we talked about in the sorcerer uh, uh, cast, is considered you know maybe the most. Well, it's a story he tried to get too. Wages of fear that it was just a clerical error on his secretary that he couldn't get the rights to the book to do that. But I have a theory, and people can disagree. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, like suspense, suspense. is a very like S- simple uh, thing to execute. Yes. And I think because it is very easy for a viewer, a film lover, or even the layman to understand how it works, it's like we put more uh, emphasis? emphasis on it and celebrate it more than it probably deserves to be celebrated because it is, it's a very simple thing well, to Hitchcock- do. But, but the beauty of what Hitchcock does is that he's so perfect at it like his execution of it is so perfect but you know he always you know you know whenever you hear any uh discussion with him an interview with him he talks about the idea of there's a bomb under the table the audience knows the bombs under the table the people that no are, well he that are at the table they don't know the bombs under the table so as a viewer we're like there's a bomb under he the makes table. a distinction where he's a big thing where his thing is there's a difference and i guess people 
he wanted to take talk about this at the time was be, there's a difference between surprise and suspense. Yeah. And he says th- those are two different things, which clearly we but, know and the audience knows. And he would say uh, su- the difference is surprise to people like you're saying talking at a table, bomb goes off. Oh, my God, that's a surprise. But then you f- rewind that and he's saying what Blake is saying that if – so you, people are sitting at a table, and then you establish there's a bomb under the table, yeah. and then they're talking about baseball. I hear there's a there's a, a, a 70s master film master show that you can see probably on YouTube. I would guess where she's talking to a woman and yeah uh, in a in a like a, in a theater. theater yeah like and he uses row. that example. There's a bomb under the chair. The yeah. audience knows the bomb chair. We don't know the bombs. But under then the he chair. always says you can never let that bomb go. You can. You have to properly diffuse the suspense so that the audience won't hate you. Yeah, yeah. If you let the bomb go off, you kill Which everybody. Is that at that point? This that aspect of it, I think, is thrown out the window yeah. by today's standards. Yeah, but like, at people the time, don't care if you blow somebody up. Yeah, but the idea of suspense is that like. So it's, it's all about like what rope is really. Yeah. It's like the audience knows that something that the, the that the characters something that the characters don't know, and it's like, are they going to find out? Yeah, is really all it really is, you know. And in horror movies, it happens, you know, uh, maybe not knowing the the idea of not knowing. Mike Myers some... leaning up in the background, and Jamie, you hear you well, hear Eddie... that audience track. Everyone's screaming the opening night. Jamie Lee Curtis is in the foreground, and dun dun. Yeah, and, and then he's getting up, coming towards her, and people are like, get out the house, get or, out the house, you know, or any you know device in a slasher movie or horror movie. The idea of like walking down the hallway, and you know, having that music, and then, but like the not knowing, like feeling like something's gonna happen, knowing something's gonna happen, the thing's gonna jump out at you. It's like not knowing when it's gonna jump at you, and then you get, you know, that's punctuated with the surprise, like of it happening with the big. You know, boom of somebody's of in the bathroom and they open their <laughs> their 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 mirror and they shut it and you expect someone's going to be behind them. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then it's always oh, the ex- they turn around. The and expectation there. of something happening is, is also very suspicious. It's like you know when you you hear about uh, you know the idea of like the 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 fear of the hit is worse than the hit if you're going to get slapped by your parents. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You, they got to put their hand up and you you flinch and then it's worse than actually getting hit because you, you yeah know? yeah. So Hitchcock was very so aware, it, aware. So it of that. works in a couple of different ways, but the way Hitchcock uses it a lot is by revealing information to the viewer. Yeah, that often the characters within the movie don't. No. Yeah. And so he is kind of brilliant at this of knowing what to give, what information to give the audience and what information to withhold from the audience or vice versa with the characters within the movie. This little piece of uh, information that the audience is privy to is that there is a female character living, leaving the apartment with Raymond Burr. Does it play into suspense in this particular instance? Not really, but it's. Keeping Jimmy Stewart in the dark about it so that his curiosity of what's happening, the unknown that's happening inside that apartment, is what drives the story. That's the MacGuffin of the yeah. story. And it's also – it convolutes the story a little to leave the audience a little guessing. Yeah. It's like, well, do we know something that Jimmy Stewart doesn't he, – he's possibly yeah, sure going some down – audiences may think, oh, maybe that's the wife. Maybe of Jimmy course. Stewart's Well, wrong. you know, then we get the – Doyle you know, Doyle going, like I talk to people in the apartment. They see him leave with his wife. Yeah. I go to the train station. He train. puts his wife on the train. He went up to Merritt, yeah. Merrittville and you know, she's so up there. Yeah. There's all this – Playing against the trunk had nothing. It wasn't you know, bloody body parts. He's it telling was... us as an audience, he's leading us down this road, saying like, "No, Jimmy Stewart's wrong." Yeah, look at all this information. The evidence is there, but because we're engaged by Jimmy Stewart, he's our eyes 
through, we just happen to catch this information that he missed, uh, we're still on Jimmy Stewart's side as a viewer. And I think he talks about suspense being, maybe that's his quote saying that it's the purest expression of a cinematic idea, showing, executing an idea of suspense. Uh, you know, he gets the guy, the, the screenwriter, to write a 35-page treatment. And that 35-page treatment that he submits to, to make this movie is so good. Jimmy Stewart, Par- Paramount greenlights the movie, and then Jimmy Stewart s- signs on just by this 35 pages. And then the guy go writes, writes this tight little script. And then they, I guess, you know, Hitchcock sends everyone out in New York. They, they find an actual uh, place we can put a link in the cast of where this location is because uh, you could see what it looks like today in Greenwich Village for real. For real? And then it's also used in two other movies. There's an, uh, a Woody Allen movie where they, they uh, uh, spoof uh, this scene in it and they use this actual apartment in the location. And then in Serpico... Serpico's apartment, even though the, the, the main entrance is a different place, his backyard it leads to a courtyard. This is the courtyard that this is, you know. It's, so uh, I guess as Hitchcock would probably know that the best way to do this is you have to have everything controlled. You can't do this location on, on a real location. To have complete control, you've got to go build the fucker. Yeah. So they go to this soundstage. And they, he has the clout to do that. And, he has the, <laughs> and, he's, and he's motherfucking... <laughs> he's he's uh, Alfred Hitchcock. So he goes to the studio, and he, uh, he builds a set, and they realize that they, they don't have... They need it to be higher than the roof on the, the soundstage. So, and that's another thing too. You think about soundstage. You know, when when pictures became sound, that's when they start calling them sound stages. Before they were just they would shoot movies on stages, but then yeah. now it's a sound stage. So anyway, so they realize they need a taller sound stage than Paramount has. So then they get the idea: fuck it, we'll rip the floor out. Yeah, and we'll go. We'll because they're using the basement as the storage, storage yeah. for like, sets. Clear or out the basement, wardrobe, we'll take the floor out, and then like we said, well, well, they're gonna do that. And Blake's like, well, it's Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the studio says, sure. So they rip the floor out, meaning that the courtyard below uh, Jimmy Stewart is actually the basement. Yeah. So Jimmy Stewart's apartment, which is the second floor in the te- in the movie, is actually the ground floor of the the sound of the sound stage. And then across, I mean, it's and I was trying to think about, uh, you know, the the distance and and the, you know in in the idea of how they had to do everything to scale but then if you look down the alley to the uh sh- the New York City street that Jimmy Stewart can only see a sliver of they've got cars at points going by really quick so they must yeah. have ha- figured out they must have the stage door open to get enough momentum to have a car zoom by you know yeah uh and then another thing is um you know Blake and I both work in the industry uh, we work in TV Blake's an editor I work in TV news uh, I work in studios. It's amazing to think that the idea of them having these arc lights that they're working with to do these. They had to have four different uh, lighting setups, one early morning, one like afternoon, one early evening like twilight, and then nighttime. Well, I mean, they didn't have to, but, but this it was a stroke of brilliance for calls for, for, for uh, you know, to save time and everything. So they lit it for these four different times of day, yeah. which... It kind of goes a little bit back to our uh, Emmett Otter cast where we're talking about oh, how they well, do that. that the psych, how they're able to turn the psych to have it be Emmett Otter singing a song on the lake and then you see the, the sunset while they're singing. It's, yeah. a, it's a stroke of brilliance. But back then they had these arc lights which were so hot 
and to think that like it would take them 45 minutes between setups to get and this is very efficient at the time to go from one setup to the other and i think that probably has to do with a lot of like getting the color temperature right and, and yeah. setting stuff but nowadays i mean these things were so hot they were setting at one part they set the fire alarm off and the sprinkler system were activated but they had already put in this whole kind of um uh, drainage system because there was a scene where when when Raymond Burr supposedly kills his wife, guilty until presumed innocent and presumed <laughs> guilty, that they have a rain sequence. So they had built everything with the idea of everything getting rained on. Yeah. But these lights are so hot that think the heat that's being like nowadays we're just turning over in the in the industry to LEDs and LEDs are very cool. And I've noticed for every the average person, um they're starting to use LEDs for stuff out in the streets, traffic signals and stuff. And if you noticed, if you live in any, in any places that start, that you get a lot of snow, in the old days, if you look at a traffic light, if it's a blizzard out, the traffic light would ge- generate just enough heat that it would keep the snow melted so you could see if it's green, yellow, or red. The ne- new, the new LEDs aren't, don't generate really any heat. So that's how you're starting to see that when, there's, when it's snowing a lot, it'll cover the snow, the signal, and then you can't see the signal. So that's a downside of LEDs. Yeah. But LED... They're much more expensive, but one, you don't need – it's it's like I said it and forget it. You don't need to put gels up, color temperatures. You just need to know the program, and you don't need these fuses. You can actually have Edison, like three-prong in America, the outlets, a regular outlet to plug in, and you can have 10 or 11, like, you know, uh, Leco lights working off what you'd only be able to have, say, two or three before. Yeah. And then if you retrofit an entire studio nowadays, you, you're using just, say, under half – the wattage that you'd need traditionally with an older thing. So with fuses and stuff, so using, I mean, you think of the monsters we were talking about with film in the old days where it was a different kind of film and you need lights. You needed more light. Yeah, because of the low speed, uh, more, you know. To to, To get the exposure. And we brought this up on the Bullet podcast about the innovations in cameras and, and, and film to be able to, that's why you couldn't shoot on locations a lot, especially at night, because you needed a lot of light to get an exposure on the film. So even if it was nighttime, it would look, you know, you need a fuckload, a lot of light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this and is, the lights are really hot. Yeah. You know? We talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that they were- Which we didn't, we haven't covered yet, but we, we talked about- we mentioned it yeah. because of this idea of that they were shooting with a, a very slow film, which means you needed a lot of light to get an exposure. Then they're shooting at, they're shooting a night, time scene in the daytime in the daytime so they're shooting that dinner scene you know where she where At Marilyn end. Burns is tied up with like black duvetine to cut to block out the daylight so it looks like it's nighttime. over the windows it's a heat with, wave outside it's 100 degrees outside it's, it's like Texas. 140 degrees inside because the lights are hot yeah you know you needed a lot of light and Back the light then. generated a lot of heat yeah so the, so this set for rear window was very hot so they talk about the people who were on the higher uh, elevation of the of the apartments going towards the ceiling were freaking you know really yeah, and also you're closer to a lot of the lights yeah too. I mean the, the entire thing was they had 31 apartments, uh, eight of which were completely furnished, and the courtyard set was 20 to 30 feet below. I mean, it was, uh, it's, and then the, it ends up being from the basement up. It's like five or six stories high, uh, 
And then in the background, you get, which I kind of like, you get that skyline that you see in rope, you know, in the, in the, in the you know, with the yeah. changing. And then the only thing which I don't like is I like the idea is that they superimpose a helicopter at one point, <laughs> which I think is a great idea. It's cool. But yeah. they superimpose it in such a way where it looks like the helicopter is about to land or <laughs> yeah. it's too close to the, you know, it's like coming down. And it's like, why is this? It, it's a joke. It, it, it'd been funnier if it was a little farther it away. Well, it would be more realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. But I, mean, but I, but I do gripe. love that you do get that little peak. Out outside the courtyard, I love that. Yeah, that little sliver of the streets. Whereas, like, he can always see sees them leaving across the street. You see, you know, when we see, uh, she's like, "I'm just gonna go when uh, she runs after fellow the, Ritters. I'm just gonna run and so we we'll see what 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 truck t- takes the the trunk that they think the body's in. Yeah, I'm just gonna see what company. And she runs out and she runs in. The and you range. see the truck leave, and then she <laughs> misses it, and she's like, "Oh, she puts her hands up." So if if Raymond Burr goes out of the apartment building he lives in, if he goes to the left, he's going to pass this little sliver alleyway that we yeah, can see. Yeah. And that's and where I, we see Miss Lonely Heart go across, across the street to the, bar. To, to the bar. And it's so well choreographed. So that's why I love there's so much business of in the background. You have all these extras walking like it's a New York City street, walking past this little yeah. entrance. You know, it's just so neat. So, I, I so love neat. that you just you do get this little yeah. sliver of the outside world. You know, it's like I, it's almost like I want to like have a bomb shelter in my basement or in my sub 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 basement. And then I want to have one of these bomb shelters you hear that, that people have like the fake. <laughs> you know, background, yeah, yeah. you know, so it looks like it's a skyline, so it looks like rope just, where you can hit a button like Emmett Otter and then within five minutes it turns to dark, you know, <laughs> you know? or you have this little, you can't have people down there, but you have do this, a, uh, you, you know, know, if one of us wins the lottery, we'll buy a giant storage space and we'll, <laughs> and them just and we'll recreate <laughs> the rear window set and we'll just like have you, me, and a bunch of our friends live in these apartments and then, not only were some of these apartments furnished, they say some of them actually had running water and lights and all that kind of stuff. And then Hitchcock would direct the whole movie from. He never left Jimmy Stewart's apartment. Which why would he? Because he's everything is shot from literally shot from inside the apartment. And he would give direction to to the other people in the apartment because they would wear a, a flesh colored earpiece. Yeah. And that's how he would give his direction out. So that's really you could see why he's doing that. He doesn't but, need to leave the apartment. Yeah, but you know, you know he also was you know he was a very meticulous filmmaker in that you know he recorded all those sounds coming from those apartments from Jimmy Stewart's apartment so that it sounded proper so we're getting into sound design here so he was taking sound on set which is kind of unheard of past dialogue and he's he's recording it he's recording the sound from Jimmy Stewart's apartment having everybody give do the sound from the apartments across the way to get the proper distance so that's that's amazing. So he's not really a, trying to ADR. So that's why you lose some of that, which is I think is great. You know, yeah. you, you don't you so can't read lips or realistic. Yeah, but he's also, uh, you know, I was watching an interview with maybe it was with the first AD that we were talking about earlier, and he was saying somebody was somebody was asked about working with Hitchcock and Hitchcock was about uh, you know him and the command of you know how much command he had over the, the camera work and all that stuff. And it's like one he always. He tried to always shoot with a 50 millimeter yeah, lens, 50. which is uh, the closest to what a human perspective is. Yeah, is so, all like if you you know if you if you had the bottle on a table and you were X amount of feet away, if you use a 50, it's going to be closest to how you would actually see that if you're standing in that spot. Yeah, and Hitchcock would. When he was shooting a POV, he was one of the only directors that this person ever worked with that actually measured how tall the actor was so, so and would raise the camera to that height so that it was actually accurate to what, you know, the, the actual perspective of what it would look like from, Which that, is amazing. from that point of view. Um, 
just uh, you know, I, I just I find this kind of stuff fascinating because I think even as people that you know are were still are like aspiring filmmakers, I'm sure some of the people, many of the people that listen to this podcast are in the same boat and, you know, are very interested in the in the craft of filmmaking and, and would love to make movies. You know, there's just so much stuff that I feel like most people, including myself, would never even really think about. And when you see the amount of, you know, care and detail that someone like Hitchcock puts into things, you're like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, costume design is that important. You know, yeah. it does say something. The way he frames a shot, if you framed it slightly differently... It does say something completely different about what, how you're presenting it, um, or even knowing enough to 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 storyboard the entire movie beforehand to go back to the be- the beginning of the podcast where then he he shoots only what he needs. So when he's in the editing room, he he knows what he's cutting to. He's not looking. Let's try this out. Let's try him. You know, he knows it's this going to cut this way, this way. It's like he he's knows how his puzzle is going to come together. So, you know, yeah. I mean, um, often, you know, his, his daughter, when you see her in interviews would often say that, you know, he always talked about how the actual shooting of the movie was very boring to him because he had already shot it in his head. Yeah, you know, he had already yeah. gone through the process. So it's always kind of anticlimactic. And then that gets to the point where he's talking about the, the, his idea with actors. And there's that famous thing where he says actors are cattle. I mean, he seems to like, since he knows so much so of what he wants, his idea was he would hire somebody that knew what they were doing so Hitch really didn't have to give them, yeah, you know, uh, too much. You know, your job is to know what you need to do, you know, be off book, know your lines, you know, uh, know your mark. And he didn't want somebody that, you know, like he, he, you know, didn't like working with method actors. Yeah. Because they wanted to know why. Like, well, I don't think my character would look up at that. Yeah, and Hitch is like, and fuck's sake. He's <laughs> like, well, you know what, like... To, to, for me to tell the story you gotta look visually, up. you have to look at that. Yeah. So that's why your character is looking at that, because I said so. Yeah, and it's interesting you have Because it's the... propelling the storyline, not your motivation. <laughs> you fucking idiot. <laughs> it's, you, you have the idea of, of like him working with Jimmy Stewart and, and Cary Grant in the 50s, where uh, I'm sure you're the Cary Grant man, I'm the Jimmy Stewart man in these situations. And it's like he's working with two guys where Jimmy Stewart, he looks at like as like the everyday man. Uh, and then working with Cary Grant where uh, he must have a, a good rapport with these guys to be able to have. I mean, he works, what, he's with three maybe, Cary Grants? Notori- no, he f- sus- more. He does Notorious Suspicion. Uh, Catch, Catch a, a thief, thief and then North by Northwest. North by Northwest. And yeah. then Jimmy Stewart is uh, the... Tr- um, rope. Rope, this Rear Window, Vertigo, vertigo uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much. And I thought he did one more with him. But... um. So it's like he has people he knows that he won't have a problem with and he gets along good with that he'll be able to have a, a rapport with. And then, like, his next movie, after this movie, he does The Trouble with Harry, which is kind of a really weird, quirky, doesn't really do any well, but it's kind of like a Coen Brothers dark comedy that it's really with the British comedy of trying to hide a body and there's these problems and it's set in New England. And it's, I think, his first work with... Um, Bernard Herman, who go back to suspense. Bernard Herman did the score for the show Suspense, um, and then after working with Bernard Herman on that piece, which I think Hitchcock says is his favorite Bernard Herman score, um, they go on to do you know he does Vertigo together, which is fucking yeah. Vertigo is that that soundtrack's fucking amazing, yeah, and then yeah. Psycho, North by Northwest, Northwest, Northwest you know it's just like he does all this, and then 
Uh, Bernard Herrmann goes on to do like Cape Fear, which isn't a Hitchcock movie, but he does all this other really up until Taxi Driver, I think, is his last movie before he dies. Yeah, uh, Taxi Driver. Bernard Herrmann. uh, And he does at least the main theme for It's Alive. Which okay. is right around that time. Yeah. So one or the other is actually the last thing he does, but he also does Obsession for De Palma. Yeah. Uh, just before that, which is a total homage to Hitchcock. Yeah, well, a lot of the, that early De Palma. But like that one is specific. Like no. it is totally him trying to do like a vertigo. Like when you watch that movie, it's almost jarring how, you know, De Palma takes a lot from Hitchcock. Those early years. For his movies. Dress to Kill, but, Body uh, Double. But Obsession is very much blow, a Hitchcock. Blow movie. out. Blow out, not yeah. blow up, blow out. But a lot of those movies, De Palma would argue would that argue that they're not. But they're more. A lot of those movies are more Jallo than they are Hitchcock. Even yeah, though they have a lot of Hitchcock influence, and the way he tries to do them are very influenced by Hitchcock. But Obsession is very clearly a Hitchcock, uh, more specifically a Vertigo. That even the way that he uses Bernard Herrmann's music is. To a T. Yeah. But, uh, and, so, you know, look, Herman is easily, you know, if you were going to make the Mount Rushmore of film music composers, he's on it. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, even as far back as being a pioneer of electronic music by using the theremin yeah. in the day the earth stands still, you know, who is... Uh, you and know, he has a cameo at the beginning of The Man Who Do Too Much, the remake. He's at the, the orchestra at the beginning. With the, You see him. And, you know, I'd say at least half of the composers in, in my book, Scored to Death, uh, Conversations with Some of Horace Grace Composers, talk about how important uh, Bernard Herrmann was yeah. and why he was so important, which was a question I ask a lot of composers. Because like, they'll talk about Bernard Herrmann and the importance. I was like, well, like, why? Why is he important? Uh, and since he didn't do the score, there's no sense in really going into some of those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. If we eventually do something like Psycho or one of these other movies, we could talk more in depth about Bernard yeah. Herman. But that was a very uh, prosperous and, and great uh, relationship yeah. that they had. Well, it's there. like him with Edith Head or whatever. Like he gets somebody he likes and he can stick with. I mean, Waxman is still you know, a pioneer in the industry. And then prior to this, working with Hitchcock in a, in a bunch here, the... They end up getting a lot of diegetic, like we're saying, the the songs you end up hearing, like "To See You Is to Love You," the Nat, uh, the the Bing Crosby song, which is from "Road to Bali." I love the "Road to" movies is heard. Uh, Nat King Cole's "Mona Lisa," which I was singing at the beginnings, in that even you hear a rendition of Dean Martin's "That's Amore" in at one point. Yeah, hear, but I don't. They're not the original versions, right? The uh, I don't think "Mona Lisa" is not Nat King Cole doing "Mona." No, it's not. It's 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 but the version. These, but they use these movies. But Bing Bing music. Crosby's is because she puts on and this Lonely Heart puts the Bing Crosby song on. Yeah. So it's his recording of that because and it's these are also too is these are popular songs in the zeitgeist of fifties. Yeah. So like, but they also happen to be owned by. Paramount. Yeah, so. yeah. So that so that's all very convenient. So people are going to know that, and that's the era where people will know instrumentals by just hearing them in the background. So you may know that that's a more. Uh, I forget what why we hear that's a more. Maybe that the uh, the uh, the sculptors playing. Yeah, you know, no, to are, me, Mona Lisa you know, is the one that really sticks out. I feel like that has the biggest role of those. No, of Lolisa. No, like the song Mona Lisa. The, oh, the, okay. Of the ones that aren't written for the movie. Oh, okay. That's the one that sticks out for me the most. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one, that, one that's not a theme for the movie. Yeah, yeah, okay. For the movie, but that's like just diegetic music in the background. Yeah, so you hear all these different things being played. There's other, a couple, there's, you know, Rodgers and Hamst, uh Fancy Free, there's, they have a tune. Um, and then, so... 
everything seems to be going all right. Even I think Jimmy Stewart thinks that he thinks he's wrong. And then you have the 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 dog from the third floor uh, coming down to use the bathroom, starting to scrape up the flowers. Yeah. And uh, this is where I think Raymond Burr gets careless because I don't think Raymond Burr needed to kill the dog. He just needed to move whatever was in. We never even know what was hidden there. Yeah. Because by the time um, uh, the girls, uh, Grace Kelly and what's her face, the, the nurse run over to try to dig it up, he's moved whatever was there. But he ends up killing the dog, and it's that great idea like um, where she, the, the poor woman – she starts screaming at the courtyard and everyone looks except Raymond Burr, you know, but you could see he's in the apartment because I love that, the, the image of like him smoking a cigarette and you see the cherry on the cigarette, Yeah, you know, that he's just, he's the only one that doesn't come to the window. Um, and that's where the part where it's like, see, you know, he didn't need to kill the dog and it's like, he could have got away with, yeah. it's almost bringing too much attention to yourself. But there's you know? also, I love that scene because I love her, the woman's reaction. Like, it says so much about uh, really what's going on. And also so much about, you know, you, I think, I think it's, it's natural for us to think that things that are relevant today are of today's time. Yeah. But it's interesting when you see something from 1954. She's like, what is wrong with you? Like, we're supposed to be neighbors. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to talk to each other. Yeah. And it's like. You can hardly hear her because of how the, the sound, you know. And yeah, then, yeah. But it almost makes it more powerful. Yeah. That she's screaming this across the courtyard. She's like, what's. But this idea of like. People aren't really bothered. The composers are having a party. They stop and they're kind of half drunk. Like, oh, what's happening? Yeah. They're kind of but like. But the fact that they all jokey. live in these little cubicles. And no one know, knows each other. And nobody talks to each other. That's. Look, that's Which the way the, we all are with our phones. And today. it's also, like, too, the city. We talked about this in other podcasts the idea of the loneliness. You know, you could be living right next to each other. You sit next to each other. Well, I've said, I mean, I've know, said it to yeah. you. I probably said it on this podcast. When, I'm I, saying. when I moved to Manhattan and I was living by myself for the first time after I moved out, when I was before that, I was living with Dion for a year and I moved into Midtown. He had enough. He's like, I got to get out. <laughs> I moved into Midtown Manhattan. No, well, you had the opportunity to move into by yourself, and that was the first time. Yeah, it's the first time I'd ever lived by myself. I had uh, It was had to do with you know the apartment that I ended up getting, which was a long time in the making. So and, you were like, I want to have a little time before I settle down to be able to have, yeah. live by my and own. And I was you know working in New York, so it made sense, and I got an affordable apartment. But it was like when I moved into New York, you know, never was I ever surrounded by so many people. But, but so lonely. But so lonely. Yeah. It really is, like, can be and is the loneliest place on earth. Yeah, or you know? a major city, I think. Yeah, yeah. like any major York. city, yeah. especially whatever kind of, you know, if you're in a certain frame of mind, especially, you know. It really was like, you know, it was a lonely couple of years there living by myself in New York. And it was a, it was a rough time, but you do get this idea. Like, I totally, as someone that lives in New York, I have, I can totally relate to that. But I did find it very... Uh, you know, not prophetic, but relevant to what to, what people are like now. Yeah, you know, this idea of like we're supposed to talk to each other. It's like nobody talks to each other anymore. I mean, if Dion and I didn't get together to do this podcast, we would probably never talk to each other. It would all be text, but I mean, it would be communication. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, we would just you know we don't talk to everybody. I mean, I think you know, I would imagine that more people than uh, I think. A lot of other people would give credit to her, like Dion and I, and that we, we, you know, we're very courteous, and we, you know, we do. Like I know my neighbors in my apartment building, and if I run into them in the hall, we'll make small talk and stuff. I don't know any of them particularly personally, but uh, I do see. 
you know, you do see that just people don't communicate anymore. Certainly did, with the advent of the internet well, and yeah, the advent of the phone smartphone and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So I just this movie, like I said, this movie wouldn't happen if if we had the smartphone. But nowadays. I did find it, you know, that her exchange, her her message there, being very interesting, being from 1954 and still very relevant. I think in we 2019. You know, what we always talk about on this podcast about. Um, uh, us learning <laughs> what's the what's the other thing we talk about that uh, I lost my train of thought again where where we uh, we learn the process of how things made but then the other I, I can't make that point but the point I'm, the greater point I'm making here is that we learn that a lot of these ideas aren't of their time that you know it, this movie takes place sixty years ago but there a lot of the the the, the the relationships between people in it are oh, very very uni- modern universal yeah and it, they're they're universal which I think they break language barriers as well as that even though this is the 1950s this is stuff you still see happening today except the times are changing you're getting new clothes or you're getting better technology but you're still living in apartment buildings that are just as old but yeah. people's interactions are probably just the same I also think that a lot of that has to do and uh, you know I'll give credit to Hitchcock in that his cinematic way of telling a story is kind of timeless because yeah. it's visual it can be it can cross language barriers also like you could watch a hitchcock movie for the most part and not on mute and still understand the impact of what's happening and the importance of things that he's showing you and they told us that in film school they would say that the best films would be films that you can watch muted and still have an idea what's going on in the story you don't need the dialogue per se yeah, yeah, and, right. and I think you're right. Hitchcock is the perfect example of that. He's, you know, he's at the hindrance of the technology of the day. Yeah. And I think, you know, has his, he has a tan tied behind his back in certain aspects. And you get things that look cheesy now, like when everybody rushes out of their apartment, it's sped up a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, things that maybe don't translate. During the climax of to the like fight. modern, you know, uh, cinema today as well. You know, that dates it a little bit. But overall, like, the story is kind of timeless. You know, the relationships, like, human, you know, human relationships are human relationships. Yeah. I mean, no matter what time they're in, it is kind of universal. And because he has this way of being able to tell that his stories visually were not bogged down by, uh, you know, mo- you know, whatever it was, the current idioms of speech at the time – you know, things that like, hey, man, don't be sore at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, be cool. You dig? You know, groove. Groovy. You know, you're not, it's, everything's told visually. And so as a, as a modern film goer, everything still kind of holds up. Yeah. You know, it's really, uh, you know, I, I mean, look, it is, I think this is in, in a lot of ways, you know, if you were going to make a list of like the five quintessential movies to not necessarily Hitchcock's best movies, but the ones that be like to, to show an alien, <laughs> if you're trying to describe filmmaking to someone that has never seen a Hitchcock movie, you know, like if you were going to make a little time, like a little capsule of like, these are the five movies that you should watch and you'll really understand Hitchcock yeah. as an artist 
and a, and a filmmaker. I would you'd, you'd have to put this one. In. Well, a lot of people can uh, see this as his best movie, or the, and also they put this on the list of some of the best movies of all time. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of them. I I was kind of more interested in doing uh, North by Northwest for this just because it is like a quintessential version of that. It's another that, that the we other, were talking about earlier with 39 steps, this idea of like the wrong the Joe the you know average Joe put on this crazy adventure thrown into extraordinary circumstances. This is that to yeah. a certain extent, but in a very different way. We were almost did like a, a a double feature or a sleepover double feature of the two of these <laughs> where that that was the other kind of thing that Hitchcock was obsessed with at the time is the normal person put into the zany adventure that he doesn't he's mistakenly yeah. accused of something or whatever and he's on the run to clear his name and also kind of giallo-ish figure out what's going on at the same time yeah. and this is an idea in, in the 50s for whatever reason maybe it was because of doctor's wishes Hitchcock lost like 150 pounds and he really thinned down and that's where you get I think even in Lifeboat where they're trying to figure out where his cameo could be in Lifeboat you have someone reading a paper and you see in the paper in the back you see him before and after and it's like you know I forget it's like uh, what the what the the blurb is to get thin or whatever. But Hitchcock was felt really good about himself at this point. He thought the juices were flowing, the batteries were charged when he had this deal with Universal. And he does these five movies. And these, this, for me, is almost my favorite era of Hitchcock up until about Psycho. Um, the other movies are good post-Psycho. Yeah. And then the other movies before this are fabulous as well. Yeah, yeah. Notorious and, and Suspicion and well, those. Well, for me, but you know, I it's funny because Notorious is my favorite Hitchcock movie. But... What I imagine a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. Like if you watch, and I love, so like I love Frenzy. Yeah. You know, but when you watch that 70s period of Hitchcock movie and if you see clips of it, you're yeah. like, that's not a Hitchcock movie. Yeah, it looks weird. Because it looks, doesn't, like the it almost film, looks like British. The colors and the film stock, you know, uh, and when when I say film stock, it's like as 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 the years go by, the formula for how they made the film would change. And so you get the way things look aren't only set design but also the actual quality of the picture is changes like the 80s has a very specific every decade has like a very specific 70s 60s yeah so to me this like 50s period of vibrant colors just like you like this is like when I think of like a Hitchcock movie this is what a Hitchcock movie looks to me. Yeah. Looks like to me. So this with me is like that in the Bernard Herrmann. I mean, Herman, the, dun, 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 and, and, I mean Psycho's in black and white. Yeah. But well, that's know, a conscious decision, him doing The Wrong Man in black and white, Strangers on the Train in back, black and white. Uh, Psycho, he could have very easily did these in color. But I mean- but like Vertigo, uh, this the remake of North, The Man, the the man Who Knew Too Much, much North by Northwest. You know, just thief. like that- the way the 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 lush colors, the way that looks, just yeah, is like says Hitchcock it's, to me. It's it's so gorgeous, um, and this is Hitchcock used to always say that this story too was based off of some very two famous British murders. One guy he had, uh, which I think I ends up translating to to the Alfred Hitchcock show on a story or two, where one guy supposedly killed his wife and dismembered her, and then he. Uh, maybe buried, didn't know what to do with the head, and then there's a story where he put the head into the fire, and the fire opened the eyes and scared the guy, so the guy tried to hide the head, and then he got caught uh, because he was, I think, going away. There's there's two different stories. There's one, a 1910 case, Dr. Kriplin, uh, and there's a 1924 case with Patrick Moen. One guy was, a, was an American native living in England who killed his wife uh, and ran off with his secretary and then was telling everybody that his wife had 
gone to Cal- back to California and everyone believed it. But the reason the guy got caught was because he started uh, having his his girlfriend or who he was having the affair with wear his dead wife's jewelry. So the neighbors were like, why is she wearing her stuff? And then they did some inquiries and then it was he got caught. And then the other thing was this guy dismembered the body, got rid of the body. I think he he threw it over, you know, the, into the water, didn't know what to do with the head. And then this is kind of like the idea of why Raymond Burr puts whatever he puts into the flower garden yeah. there. And then he took elements of those two cases that were famous in British lore at the beginning of the 20th century and, and fed them into here yeah. this, for this kind like of there yard. there was also some kind of murder where they m- murders his wife and then he tries to run away with his mistress and they take a cruise. Well, that's and, the end of that story with the guy in California. They get on a cruise and they're like dressed as sailors or yeah, something he weird. Up like a sailor. Or they both do, and then so then and then the captain finds out because there's a story where if you guys look up the 1910 case of Doctor uh, Harley Kriplin with a C, and then the 1924 case of Patrick Moen, those the two one Kriplin uh, killed his wife and told friends she went to America, and then that's where I think. He, it was the one where he where they went, they took a cruise and they were found out. And then the other guy killed his pregnant girlfriend and, and threw pieces of her body out a train window. And then he didn't know what to do with her head. With her head. So that's where he tried to he tried to burn the head. And then I think she, however way they were found, and that that went into that. Uh, well, the, this movie ends up coming out in '54. It does really really well. And I didn't know because since Blake and I uh, were born in the late '70s. Um, after these movies come, the, these five movies that Hitchcock specifically owns under this uh, Paramount deal, they end up kind of like not being recirculated into cinemas and then on TV in the 70s and 80s. And it's not until 1984 where finally uh, Hitchcock dies in 1980. They, the Hitchcock estate makes some sort of uh, agreement with, I think, Universal buys these movies. And that's the reason why we said that then Universal has this universal ride or experience that we saw when we were little universal gets these movies and then they um try to re to to do this big thing about remaster restoring them because also uh as early as this movie comes out 1954 as early as 1960 these negatives are showing some really bad wear where they lost all the yellow and there's this huge exercise if you want to go look up on how they had to actually restore this movie in particular rear window because they were using the negative uh, usually when you when you cut the camera negative you're done you make one the negative makes one print and then you use that print to make all these others they use the negative to make like 500 so they destroyed the negative by by just, just you know use. yeah just just like Throw a whore. It, put <laughs> it through the machine <laughs> yeah you know? you know so uh this by the time they went and looked at this movie the you know then so rear window never gets i guess never gets a re-release in the- theaters it screens once on ABC, which they in the seventies, which people say that ABC may not even had the right to do, but they screened it anyway. And then so no one so for for uh I guess going on what is that, twenty years or so, uh th- this movie they were called the five lost Hitchcock films. Uh The Trouble with Harry, Vertigo, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the remake, Rope, and then this movie, Rear Window, were the five movies that were kind of out of circulation. And those are the movies that I guess, if you think about Rear Window, they must have remastered in, in 1984 when they released all these movies. They did these big events, and I think they even put them in theaters. And I remember when we were in college, them the big deal was them restoring Vertigo. I feel like that was might have been high school. Was that high school? And then I remember coming out with that clamshell. Yeah, it came out with the tape because like 
Scorsese stepped in and said, "Like, look, we have to. Yeah, preser- well, that's, we have to preserve this. That's the big thing. And so with it these. was a huge thing of restoring it and releasing it on video and widescreen. Yeah, which was huge because like that was the big thing. Was at the time was them releasing stuff in letterbox on video, and that that's the thing that a lot of which I don't know if that's even people think about that anymore. But when we were growing up in high school, like in the '90s, the big the big push was a lot of these studios weren't realizing that all their films and their vaults were falling apart." That not only it's the idea of not only are you making these movies, you need to be like a library and curator and and keep and hold on to these movies because certainly the silent films of the era that were on that acetate and all these movies they're just because they're celluloid they're they're decomposing so you really had to digitize them and fix them up and these movies are examples of them really going back and and oh they I mean they're. It'd be really interesting to go back in a time machine in the DeLorean to go to see this movie the night it came out because they even say that, you know, for example, to fix the yellows in this movie, they had to figure out what they think Hitchcock would have wanted them to look like because they had no reference since all the prints were shot. You know, they have to make a restoration print where they have to go look around the world of all the existing prints of those copies of this movie they have bring them together, and then take elements of what which one has the best sound, which one has the best picture, which one has the best... Yeah. And then make a, like a Frankenstein of your best, and then you restore it. So this may even be slightly different, this vertical or whatever, than his even original intention, which... Yeah, yeah. I mean, they do go back and they look at camera notes, they look at the archive notes, they talk to people who worked on the movie to get the best, you know, but it's like Touch of Evil with Orson Welles, you know, it's... To, to get the, to the original vision of the director, it's really hard. At least being in New York, uh, this one, Rear Window gets shown at least yearly somewhere in the city. Yeah. So those that preservation uh, and then reissuing these movies as prints uh, after in this, mid-80, in this mid-80s period that Dean's talking about definitely did save them and you know because like rear window gets played it used to play at the Ziegfeld every like almost every year you know uh as now that the Ziegfeld's closed which was like the last big you know old school movie house and um but rear window gets screened a lot here which was another reason why I was like I don't know to me it seems like a, that one gets talked about a lot because it's always playing <laughs> yeah but I'm also in New York City, you know, where, I, where I've never seen North by Northwest screen somewhere, uh, as long as I've been living here. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, he makes all these movies, and I guess that, like, I, th- through the 50s, like, critics just called him just an entertainer, and he wasn't really, like, a, he was just, he'd make entertaining movies, but the critics never really took him that seriously because of then right around this time he starts doing the Alfred Hitchcock show and sure even though he but the french did yeah <laughs> well even though he books and he bookends the the Alfred Hitchcock show doing the beginning and the ends he only directed i think one a year was within his contract uh, and that ran for like say 16 years or so but you'd see him all the time and you know and then like we said by the time he got to psycho he's doing the trailer he's talking to the audience yeah, yeah. and all that kind of thing and thing. he shoots psycho with fire cocker with his television crew okay that makes a lot of sense um so you get to the early 60s um you have the french who are now digesting all of the american cinema that they kind of lost during the war and then all this kind of they're eating all this stuff up and they're going through this huge resurgence with yeah. france francois truffaut and the uh Argy, what's that called the argentine cinema the the this, the, the, the theatrical critic magazine at the time that he worked for. and then yeah. So by the time you get to the 60s, the French now are starting to call him an auteur, and that's the French word for author, 
where they're, they and they are the ones who kind of established this word auteur. The, this idea of that the that uh, that a film has one specific. It, it is a collaborative art, but there is one. There's two kinds creative of creative vision. Right? There's like a per, there's a film that's just like a. You know, everybody works on the film, so everybody has input, you know. But then there's other kind of films where that same thing could be said, but in a Hitchcock movie or a Carpenter movie. But there are specific filmmakers that have an imprint. And you can tell from film to film that they're all the the work of one specific creative mind. And that's where the French, specifically, I think, Truffaut talking to Hitchcock in his extensive interviews, they sort of call on Hitchcock an auteur, an author. And then that's where... They're not his movies aren't looked simply as just entertainment. They're also now starting to be critically analyzed in the sixties. And then he starts sitting down for this series of very long interviews with Truffaut. And it's a great book that came out that Blake and I got that um the idea in high school or in college we got hip to called uh which Hitchcock Truffaut or Truffaut yeah. Hitchcock? I think it's Hitchcock Truffaut, yeah. And I think there's even a companion uh, documentaries somewhere out there that, but it's basically like a hundred hours of in-depth Truffaut interviewing Hitchcock that then is and transcribed. You will sometimes hear the audio recordings of them. Yeah, during I specials. have like BBC. I went out. I was on a kick for a while where I was finding like BBC radio specials, mm. um, whether it be talking about you know some of my favorite albums like BB King Live at the, the Regal, like yeah. a whole little half-hour audio documentary about that, or I think. Uh, you know, talk about it uh, when we did In the Mouth of Madness, where I listened to one about H.P. Lovecraft. But there are, like, cinematic ones. And so you can find, like, these radio plays or radio documentaries and or just, or just the audio of these interviews that Truffaut did. That, uh, so you, not just in print, but, yeah. but it's Truffaut talking through a translator. So it's actually the audio of it is a little bit confusing. It's yeah. actually better to read it because you're hearing Truffaut talk to a translator, translator talking to Hitchcock, Hitchcock talking to the translator. So there's this like in between and to listen to it, it gets a little confusing. Yeah. But the, the book is fantastic. Yeah. And then that, that ends up starting this thing where you have like Peter Bogdanovich interviews Hitchcock in the seventies. Then you have Peter Bogdanovich interviewing Orson Welles. And then this other weird stuff with Bogdanovich like secretly taping Orson Welles and not telling Orson Welles to do interviews and this kind of weird sketchy shit but you it's it's fascinating for me to hear these uh theories about hitchcock just well, talking you about, about you know you know we we went to film school and we were lucky enough to persuade you know like our writing teacher to bring dick smith to talk to us yeah but, which we did a side cast on when dick smith passed away we did a tribute to dick smith if you want to go listen to that that's our least downloaded <laughs> podcast and that's a really fun story because we get to t- we talk about meeting the makeup legend dick smith but when you hear these, you hear someone like John Carpenter talk about going to USC and being in film school there and having lectures with Hitchcock and how and Howard Hawks, you know, having these people come and talk to them. Well, that's the thing because in that day, it's like I hear that about Robert Mitchum or even Vincent Price would go around talking on the art circuit. He would he would tour like, you know, like I don't know, ten months a year on the on the on the art circuit doing lectures or. Robert Mitchum would go around talking like in the seventies. That was big to go around to universities, whoever you liked, and they would people would hang out and like a, you know get high with Robert Mitchum because he smoked pot all the time, and then you talk <laughs> movies. Or Hitchcock would go, you know. So it's like, and then I think it was also this is a this is a time where there was no internet, there was no nothing else out there aside from what you'd see on TV or what you listen to on the radio, and you'd have your records or your cassettes. So if you couldn't find a book on it, there was this other. Uh, you know, avenue of like 
people going around, oh, Joe Blow is going to be speaking here. Let's go yeah. hear them because that's the only way you'd be able to hear if you and I are comic book fans, if Stan Lee's going to go be talking, and that's a, probably a bad example, but if no, Hitchcock's but he used coming, to in the 70s, they yeah. would go around and do these Because it was a lecture Would go circuit. to school to colleges and talk about writing. Yeah, and, stuff. and that's that's why it, that's fascinating to me that you're, you're, you're talking to people. You mean, know. Do you remember when your mom was telling us about how when she was in college, she went and saw a lecture by the Warrens. That the couple. How that... do you you remember? <laughs> Dion, I'm always. Hey, that's on. so weird because she's told me that since then, and I thought that was. <laughs> see, this is because I forget about stuff. I only, I only thought she told me that recently. No, no. We... So yeah, so yeah, explain the story. <laughs> well, she went and saw a lecture at when she was in college by the people that is the couple in Insidious. That the... Insidious is based on. No, uh, uh, Conjuring. Oh, the, the Warrens. Yeah, the Conjuring. You're the, right. the Warren guy, the people who did the Conjuring, who, Conjuring too. Yeah, who did the Amityville. They're based out of Connecticut, and their real house where you see in the Conjuring movies where they have like the room with the rip. And this is another thing which I don't like to. Talk, well, I don't. Not that I like to talk about, but it scares me that. Um, well, I'll get to that. But so their house is in 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 Connecticut. So in the seventies, which you see in one of the Conjurings, they would go around and do the local colleges and stuff. So my mom, when she was in college at the time in the early seventies. Uh, she was in nursing school. She saw an evening with the two of them giving their spiel, and that's where you see in The Conjuring when the people come, can you help us? And that leads to the house that you see in, in the first Conjuring movie. Yeah. Uh, they have a real, there's a real Annabelle, which is a Raggedy Ann doll. We're getting a little off track, but it's just to a point. <laughs> I was just yeah. talking about lecture. And, <laughs> and that, so, they, so they have the real doll, which is supposed to be the Annabelle doll, and it's a Raggedy Ann doll. From the the real case now the the gentleman the husband has died, but the wife is still alive and she still does these tours. And I've seen that she's publicized it, where it's come to the to- let and meet the real right, Annabelle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But there's two things. I I was like, oh, this is gonna be awesome. And I was gonna buy the tickets. The first thing they say is, hey, look, we're not giving the location out until the night of, so we don't want people to like show up and you know who don't pay. It's very secretive. Two. And this is probably more for publicity purposes, but it scares the shit out of me. You have to sign a disclaimer saying that if anything happens to you or you bring anything home with you, you're not going to be in any way sue, whatever. And I was like, that's all I fucking need with my bad luck because I go to one of these things and some entity is going <laughs> to come back like shutter style on my back and come yeah, home. Yeah. And then, so th- th- if you go look online, they still give those lectures. But point is, back to that is, yeah. So there's this. There was a whole lecture circuit that, that would happen yeah, back in the day. And I feel like. I'm sure they you kind of still did, get that. I mean, probably nowadays it's very and more. Dion, I know all the bias. Totally. <laughs> you know them all. <laughs> but I feel like now you get that more with politics. You can go see a lot of people you like in politics go give lectures. But here was like, you know, it was a little more about cinema and theory. You get people, and you get people like a Hitchcock, a Buster Keaton, like, yeah, yeah. like huge, you know, yeah, showing up in there, showing up. You know, can you just picture like, you know, Hitchcock showing up himself in his car. He's got all his like maps and his, leave that in the car till later. Alma, take the keys. My point was only that like a lot of these, this generation of filmmakers like Peter Beknanovich and Carpenter, you know, they had, Access to, access to yeah. these guys, and they would like people like Howard Hawks, and Hitchcock would come to your film school and do like a colloquium and answer questions and stuff. Unbelievable, unbelievable that 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 more people. It's become that's almost become like a niche now too, where it's it's almost like this master class thing, where like spend crap loads of money. And yeah, well, Helen Mirren's going to gonna, you know. I just teach saw one where to, Natalie Portman teaches you how to act. Yeah, and then there's Samuel Jackson, you know, and all these kind of. I've actually got as a birthday present, my ba- birthday just passed. I have the. 
Samuel L. Jackson Masterclass, which I'm actually quite excited nice. about because I watched some of the previews and it was like, oh, this is actually I saw really there was interesting. A, there was a Santana one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it is, it's, it's a great niche. Whoever thought that it's up. It's an interesting concept. <laughs> you know, so um, lastly, the other two things is uh, interesting to, too about Hitch is that Hitch's villains are often very attractive, intelligent, and charming people. She in a lot of his later movies, you know, like, like, um, well, like your movie, Shadow of a Doubt, you know, J- yeah. Joseph Cotton, and that's very good looking. The girl has a crush on him in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Strangers on the Train, the other guy is very alluring and all that kind of a thing. And then his other thing he used to always quote was an Oscar Wilde quote, which was, each man kills the thing he loves. And I think that was interesting that, you know, he kind of, it's a motif almost in Hitchcock's movies. Because, you know, he has this perversion. There's also, but there's also this element of what you were talking about earlier with, the Raymond Burr character is that there is sympathy too. Well, that's the thing is that you really he does that on purpose. You he kind of makes you feel sorry for Raymond Burr. He's in this situation, but you know you feel uh, real. I always feel really bad for Claude Rains at the end of Nitro. Oh, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the even the killer in Frenzy, there, there's a there's a switch of point of view in Frenzy where now you're ca- kind of. At some point in the movie, it switches the point of view, and now you're with the killer, and you do start to kind of feel sympathetic. Well, for you know, him. see, that's the thing. That's the brilliant with Hitchcock, where you know you could have this person be the villain in the movie, but in this scene, look at Norman Bates and Psycho. It's like you're almost rooting when when Norman Bates kills Janet Lee. Spoiler alert! And puts her in her trunk, yeah, and puts the car into the bog. The car starts sinking. It stops. And then you don't know, is the car going to sink? And Anthony Perkins is like, oh, my God, is the fucking car going to sink? And then you <laughs> on the sound yeah. design, it's like you're rooting. Oh, I hope it sinks, even though he just fucking killed Janet Lee, you know, yeah, or yeah. Janet Lee. Well, at that point, we don't know it was him. But... Yeah. Spoiler alert again. <laughs> or like, you know, Janet Lee running away at the beginning. She committed a crime. She, she ran yeah. off with a fuckload of money. Uh, uh, you know, and she, and, and so she's actually a criminal. And does that negate the fact later on that she's killed? Or, but it's like he always, it's not always black and white with his stuff. And I'm sure there's other examples of like, um, you know, strangers on a train or whatever, where there's he has these little s- scenes happen where it's like, and then it's this little play with the audience watching. Is this going to happen? Oh my God! Or is this going to, you know, something is going to set right? Or you know, and it's just. It's very brilliant how he sets yeah. up. He fools the audience into even eliciting sympathy for people who shouldn't have sympathy, like Raymond Burry kills his wife in this movie. But he sets him up like the guy, the girl's nagging her. She's she's an invalid. He's trying to do what he wants, and she's still on his well, case. You definitely then, do feel for him until you, you know until you find until you really do believe yeah. that he killed his wife. But then I think I see. But he kills the dog. If he didn't kill the dog, I think he could have got away scot free. But then he, he ruins everything by taking it one step too far. Uh, but I, yeah, I also just find it interesting in this story that you know there's the the, the Thelma Ritter gives him the place Stella I think in the movie she gives him like the warning like this look, this is you, the nurse look you go through the throne and it's going to end badly all this stuff and as and as horrible as all this is she, and she also says we're a race of peeping toms as horrible as this all this occurs in the movie is then the murder. And then the danger that Grace Kelly's Lisa character gets put in. Uh, it's also like, had this not happened, you know, like we fully believe that Lisa and Jeff, Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly, are going to, you know, like it cha- this changes their life. Well, they're almost about to, the, he's almost pushing the perfect relationship. He's pushing her away. Yeah. So this could have ended there where Grace Kelly's like, well, I, you know what? I'm hot as balls. <laughs> 
and I'm rich as hell, and, and I'm a career woman, so I can go find whoever I want. She can go be Mrs. Torso, yeah, yeah, and go find because Mrs. Torso has like the rich suitor, the young suitor, the good-looking guy, the dancer, and then the payoff at the very end of the movie <laughs> is the guy comes back from uh, from the army or whatever, and it's this little short guy, and she's in love with him, and yeah, you know, yeah. and it's like she she loves this little you know yeah, you she's know been just kind of biding her time until this guy comes to her back. Bo- her bow comes back to her, but this idea of like as the change that the character, ha- the Jimmy Stewart's character, has to go through to then be able to appreciate Grace Kelly and to live hap- quote unquote happily ever after, only happens because of this story. This story, yeah. him looking out this window, yeah. him viewing something that he thinks is a murder, him being curious enough in a very giallo type way, yeah, to be that uh, amateur detective, yeah, and kind of because he's stuck in this apartment. Calling on the, his friends, the people he knows, whether it's Lisa or Stella or Tom Doyle, to be like his detectives to go out and find clues. Yeah. If all of that doesn't happen, he very well ends up as Miss Lonely Heart. Yeah, a bachelor, who, who, a bachelor. Who, thankfully, Miss Lonely Heart ends up finding love, too, because of the music. She At the that, last scene, she's over the composer's house, and she's like, like it's this, a lovely, it helped me music out. music changed my life. Played know? for me again. And then you have the, almost the, the idea that the two of them are going to end up together. And that's something you see in The Trouble with Harry, that the people get together in that little quirky movie because of this body. I mean, and it's funny because... You know, being a voyeur, that's not like, it's not nice. And at the beginning of the movie, you have Ritter, the, the, the nurse, saying like, you know, saying all, you shouldn't be looking. This is bad. And same thing with Grace Kelly. How dare you? But then once she, he, he wins them over by telling them what's happening. But yeah, at this, yeah. you know, it's not like he's doing something well, that's abnormal. He's nature. I think that's, I yeah, think that's the, the nature big of, of the movie is it's human nature. You know, but it's like he's not doing anything admirable. He's being a, 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 a no, Mr. Nosebody or whoever you call him. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, yeah. you're, 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 you're minding somebody else's business. You're not minding your own. And, and if he had just not been nosy and looking out and bored, then none of the, like you said, none of this would have happened. Uh, the other movie, I said the, 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 uh, the short story. They said this is was adapted. I said the window, nineteen forty nine, and then there was another movie called uh, the boy who cried the boy the boy cried murder in nineteen sixty six. Is another movie based off this short story, but it, it's, they're not like we're a window. Uh, and then when this movie premiered in in fifty four, um, they did this uh, pretty cool premiere with the American Korean Foundation because the Korean War just ended, and they had Milt. Uh, Milton Eisenhower, President Eisenhower's brother there, and it was an organization to help the Korean War veterans because Korea was, was all, often cited as the forgotten uh, American conflict. And this, they did a good thing to help raise money for the Korean veterans when this movie came out. So this movie goes on, like we said, that was the, the, the you know, it's, lo- I, and I don't even remember the era of it being lost. I can't even think of that. No. And then they end up coming out with this trailer in the mid-80s of Jimmy Stewart then Talking about these movies and how they're restored and check them out. You got to see them. You know, it's it's like when we were in college with um, Touch of Evil coming out, where yeah. it's like you know them doing it, recutting it to uh, Orson Welles's forty-page essay of how he wanted it. You know, so it's just amazing that this this stuff happens, and now it's all part of the psyche. That luckily we don't have any lost Hitchcock movies, or you know, and then people can have these debates of what's your favorite Hitchcock movie or what is the best Hitchcock movie or which best exemplifies a 
uh, a fifties Hitchcock movie, a color Hitchcock movie, a American versus his English years Hitchcock movie, his post psycho career Hitchcock movie. You know, so it's just it's fascinating. It's it was a big topic for us to tackle because it's freaking Alfred Hitchcock. But, yeah, um, and it's also a little bit outside like the uh mission statement of the show, which was originally when we kind of envisioned what the show would be, it would be giving the kind of attention that something like Rear Window gets to something like We Get in Bernie's. Yeah. Like the kind of movies that don't get this kind of attention. Yeah. We'll give them that kind of love and that kind of attention. Yeah. So to do something which, you know, Star Wars does to a certain extent, you know, not in the same way of a scholarly way and not that I'm saying that Dion and I are, are scholars, but giving them the kind of attention. So to do a movie that's considered a Hollywood cinematic classic by one of the great filmmakers of all time yeah. is a little bit different than what we normally do. But, uh, you know, but we we've have, been doing it enough lately where it's kind of now kind of getting. But, normal. you know, we you know, we've we're going to be you're four and a half years into the show or something. At like some that. point, we're going to run out of <laughs> Well, we can't. We <laughs> can't. out of the sleepover yeah. classic, you know. And, and also, it's a, and we do have other interests. Yeah, a matter you know? of movies we grew up watching too, as well. We grew up with Hitchcock, as we said at the beginning of this cast. So, like, you know, with if it being a Psycho or North by Northwest or a Vertigo, I mean, I can, I mean, aside from like the B sides, like The Wrong Man, I can completely see us doing Vertigo, Psycho, North by Northwest, um, a Notorious, or Strangers yeah. on a Train, one of those early ones, you know, because they're just so. They're so good. They're just so part of the the fabric of you know of of our growing up and just you know it's 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 just there endless amounts of enjoyment. Uh, but yeah, good old Hitch, huh? And uh, <laughs> you know, it's another thing too is his 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 weird fascination with the like you know his he almost with fetishes, yeah. you know, with with another conversation for another day with but but with like Jimmy Stewart's. Crazy vertigo with him changing the woman to look like the girl. He's you know well, you gotta wear the shoe, the right shoes. I need you to, I need you to be her a little while. You know it's like you know, yeah, yeah. And it's almost uh, Hitchcock thrown up on screen. The, you know you know the, the you know the, the the shots of the women's legs or the, the shoe fetishes. Yeah. Or the, well, they you say know, you know there's this whole argument, not argument, but this theory that that is based on the fact that Grace Kelly got married and left. He got pissed, and you know, and so in a way, Vertigo is about his own weird obsession yeah. with her, and also, but prior to this, and th- trying to make these other blondes into Grace Kelly, yeah, and and, and prior whether to that, it's whether it's conscious for or him not, or not, it just it's it's his it's his uh, projecting that. Where prior to this, he was, I think his girl was Ing- Ingrid Bergman, and I th- he might have wanted her for this role, but she said no, and then he got Grace Kelly, or no, he wanted Ingrid for maybe Dial M, and she said no to that, and that's why he got Grace Kelly. But he, that's how he got the idea. She was at the time when he was working with maybe on Notorious with Bergman. She was dating a New York City uh, freelance photog that would travel the world that had an apartment in the city. Uh, and that was kind of how he based this, this relationship in this movie off of Ingrid Bergman. And I forget the guy's name. He's, he's a popular photographer uh, of the era. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 his obsession with these women. He gets different ones: Ingrid Bergman, or or Tippi Hedren, or you know, you have Janet Lee for a minute, or this Grace Kelly, and, and I'm sure there's a there's a couple who's who's in um uh, uh what's her face um uh from Vertigo. It's um what's her name? Oh, it's Kim Novak. Kim Novak. You know, it's like he gets these girls, and he well, Tippi Hedren ends up getting hired because he's going to make the the woman that plays. 
maybe the sister in Psycho, the one that goes looking for Janet yeah. Lee. Like he's, she, he has her signed. Yeah. And, but she ends up getting pregnant no. before the birth. Oh yeah, and he gets pissed because he's like, why would a girl want to go get pregnant? <laughs> he says something like that. And like, so he ends up finding Tippi Hedren from like a soap, soap commercial or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, he sees her in. And he tries to make her into Grace Kelly, which is. Another story. Which of, is, you know, part of like whole... the weirdness when you look at Vertigo before that. <laughs> like, it's just a weird... Vertigo a lot is of... a very weird movie because in that movie, Jimmy Stewart is working some shit out, and by the end of that movie, he he turns one girl completely into a different girl for... for, for it's, and it's, it's almost... obsession, which is why it's like the movie, that the Palma movie, Obsession, yeah. is such an homage to that movie. But it's, it's this idea of... The obsessiveness it, is my man. It's almost like the sex. People have like the sex slave, the dominant passive in relationships with the fetishes where it's almost like Jimmy Stewart's kind of invoking some of that. Like he's having her blonder hair or wear this outfit. I bought you. He's telling her, I need you to be, you know, her Kim Novak for a little while. You know, and it's yeah, like, and then yeah. at the end of it, he's like forcing, no, you're going to do that. And takes her up. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then cata- catastrophe happens. So it's, it's so weird. His, his idea with all, you know, and then, and then what he's able to get away with with the censors and what he's able to, 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 to kind of show because he's Hitchcock and what he's able to get away with. And then at the same time, he's doing all this with these blondes. You have the next movie after Rear Window, which is The Trouble with Harry. It's Shirley MacLaine's first movie. She's like 19 or 20 in it. And she looks like she's got that young little boy haircut, very short hair. Yeah, she's yeah. got brown hair. Very different from from his his blondes of the era. So he's he's doing these other movies in between, which are... You know, the, maybe they're not so much of, um, revolving around the starlet that don't have, look anything like these platinum blondes that he kind of like has a fascination about. Yeah. You know, and he, I guess even later on when you get into the, is it Julie Andrews is in what Marnie? Is that Julie Andrews? Maybe I forget what she looks like in that. But there's, he has an arc of what he's looking for, and then, yeah. and also because he's he's quite perverted. And have you and I had this conversation off? Mike, or maybe on Mike, where if you look at if he were making movies now, they'd probably be much more different. Like he he'd have doesn't he have nudity in he has nudity in one or two of his movies when he's able to. Yeah, well, you know, people you know attribute like that he was able to, you know, his the artisticness of him was be able to do like the shower scene. Yeah, in Psycho in that way, and the fact of the matter is, people that know him, including I think his daughter, said like, "Look, if he could have done what he could do, he'd have nudity or whatever. He, he would have done it that way. Like yeah. he would have had a, like gory, <laughs> yeah. You know, he just had to send. You know, there would be nudity. It's just it that his, they weren't allowed to do it then. He would have went for it. Yeah, it's his fascination with like normal life, being upset in whatever way, witnessing a murder, being." privy to a murder or being mistaken identity figure it's just which goes into our argument of that you know some of the best art comes out of restriction yeah you know, that he wouldn't have done the shower scene that way yeah had he been able to show a nude woman getting stabbed to death. and he says that they they're one of the reasons why he he had that in black and white is that he thought senses wouldn't allow him having all that blood down so that's why he uses like chocolate syrup and like and then you never see the stab wound it's all kind you know it's you hear the noise and you see her trying to get away from the blade and the blade coming down much like in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, him, Leatherface, putting the girl on the hook. People say they see her sitting on the hook, but it's just uh, a, it's a shot change, and you see her yeah. you know, coming up. So it's interesting that if, if he was out today and he had carte blanche on what he wanted, how dirty would he go or how you know, gory would he go? So it is fascinating that because of the restriction of the censors, the Hays Code, the MPA, 
MPPA or MA, whatever it is, that he's able to, because of what he can't do, he does it in different ways. So, it's, it's, but does end up getting away, yeah. like you said, with a lot that maybe. Pre- I mean, especially to, to to catch a thief, there's some racy dialogue, or I forget. There's some instances there where her, her and uh, Grace Kelly and Cary Grant are going back. It's like what the you know. What they're talking about. Well, or, even in this movie, there's the idea of she's going to spend the night. And he has to okay it with his landlord. <laughs> well, because, yeah, the old days you weren't allowed to have – that was the thing. You're not supposed to have that kind of fraternization or that. And that's what the – remember the the cop is – that's the the funny thing. The cop's looking at it too. So the cop – you know, Doyle realizes he's got this hot, hot girl over. She's brought a night uh, overnight bag, meaning that this girl's already planned to spend the night. So Jimmy Stewart's like, yeah, like, yeah fuck, I am. And then like – um he makes that joke. Does your does your landlady know that you're having someone spend the night? Because in the old days, you weren't really supposed to have that because it was more traditional. Unless yeah. you were married, it wasn't accepted. And then when the kind of the quote unquote like female like naive naivete is that when he leaves, she's like, "Did he think I stole that bag?" Because he kept looking at my bag, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's like she doesn't realize that the connotation is like he's gonna be getting some tonight, as opposed to you know. But even that bag in the world of, of Hitchcock as a filmmaker, I'm sure is the symbolism of like femininity, and... fem- femininity, but like not what it appears. Like she's got this little bag, and when she opens it up, it's got a mirror. It's like a dresser. You know, like yeah. she, like Grace Kelly's characters, is not exactly what Jimmy. James Stewart yeah. thinks she is. Yeah. You know, she is like this little case that looks petite and stuff. But when she, you open her up, <laughs> she's <laughs> kind of adventurous and wild. And you know, and then the, so to put a fine point on this whole thing, at the last bit of the movie, you have so Jimmy. The, I, 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 we assume everyone's seen it, but then Raymond Burr runs over the house to confront Jimmy Stewart because of a, a great idea, like you said, when she, he gets, she gets into the apartment. I love the reveal when he's looking through the binoculars of the thing that she's, she's got the wedding ring to yeah, show yeah. that uh, the woman must be dead because she would have took her wedding, wedding ring, which I think is gone today because I know a lot of people who are married who don't wear the rings. But then you see Raymond Burr Great Raymond Burr, by the way. I love yeah, Raymond yeah. Burr. And this is 54. Raymond Burr doesn't start Perry Mason until 57, and he does Godzilla like 56. Raymond Burr sees her. I love that, what she's doing, yeah, yeah. and then looks up and has a realization that she's great. Then that Somebody's been watching him the whole time. Yeah, and then he calls, and, and, and Jimmy starts like, oh, he, he didn't know that we did And then it's Raymond Burr making the call. And, I, and then that's the only leap of, like, where is he making the call from? Maybe because there's a... There's the phone in the hall, like the old days. You have to go into the hall to make a phone call. He comes up, and that's another thing they talk about diegetic sound. Yeah. That, you know, you shouldn't be able to hear Raymond Burr's footsteps realistically, but because Jimmy Stewart's so scared, it's the loudest thing Jimmy Stewart's going to be hearing in the house. And he comes in, and Raymond, and he's got the flashbulbs to, to protect himself. And, and Raymond Burr's like, what the hell you want from me? <laughs> he's like, I don't have any money. And, you know, then that Raymond Burr, at that point, I don't know what Raymond Burr's thinking. It must be he just... He's he's insane with madness. He starts just trying to throw Jimmy Stewart out of the window. Fuck about frightening. Yeah, because Jimmy Stewart's got like a fucking anchor on him, this huge cast, and he's just Raymond Burr is a big guy, and he he's a bigger guy, and he starts trying to throw, and then it's and then you know the, luckily the sixth precinct, precinct is only like across the street. They get there in time, but. Uh, you he drops Jimmy Stewart and Jimmy Stewart the next scene he's okay but he's broke the other leg so he's stuck yeah. now 
in a cast with where I guess maybe he's going to get the one leg off next week. He'll have the other one. So he's there sleeping. And you pan over, like Blake was saying about telling stories, you have then uh, uh, Gene, uh, Grace Kelly, Gene Kelly. <laughs> Gene Kelly dancing. Gene Kelly shows up. Yeah, he starts dancing uh, with, a, with, a, with a coat hanger. <laughs> you have Grace Kelly in her seat, and she's dressed in jeans, which which in the fifties means she's in she's in trousers. She's adventurous, you know. She's in a flannel zip up. Oh, she's gonna she's in like an outdoor kind of gear, like she's yeah. gonna go hiking. And she's reading a book that's like something Himalayas, about the, something so, about the Himalayas. Yeah. And once she realizes Jimmy Stewart's asleep, she switches to the to like the the bizarre, the, the bizarre, bizarre or the Vanity Fair, meaning like people some people view that as like it's an fu to Jimmy Stewart that like. You know, uh, I'm going to be who I want to be. But then other people say that she's she's conforming herself kind of what Jimmy Stewart wants, but she'll never lose the heart yeah. of her individualism. Yeah, individualism, which I think is great because then you can see that, oh, they are going to marry. They are going to have these adventures where she'll be going with him when she can and being in that B-24. But she won't lose herself. Yeah, or she can go. Yeah, so it's, it's again, it's all that storytelling in that one shot. It's, it's, and then you feel bad for poor white-haired Raymond Burr. You know, with the with the old glasses. <laughs> you know, I can identify with Raymond Burr, poor guy. So uh, yeah, great movie, great. We had a, and then I think a lot of loyal uh, listeners will see. A couple weeks ago, we put out a little. We were so dumbfounded about what movie to do. We put put out even for maybe the first time ever. We, we like a poll of we, what should we should yeah, do. Yeah, and we threw in some red herrings in there, and people were even like throwing like, I want frenzy. <laughs> I want. I would totally do frenzy. I think there's actually a lot to discuss with frenzy. Well, there's. A, I mean, there's so many. You know, that's why I was even suggesting maybe we should do a double feature. Do this and North by Northwest. And Blake yeah. was like, "That's just too unpopular." That's that, popping. That's a six-hour <laughs> podcast. Exactly. Yeah. And you know the Cary. You know Blake's the Cary Grant man. I'm the Jimmy Stewart man. So it's like seeing these I like uh, amazing Jimmy Stewart. Oh, I know, but it's like. You're a cliffhanger on Microsoft. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. why I mean, you know, it's kind of that kind of situation. That's why, why Philadelphia stories are my it's, top that's, ten. That's your, that's your story. Yeah, yeah. And me, it's Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just it's so much to unpack, and there's so many movies when you get down to brass tacks of what we can cover of his stuff. Yeah. Uh, and not even getting into his, you know, his little radio career. I wonder if they probably did translate some of like Shadow of a Doubt and Notorious to radio plays. That'd be interesting to see like oh, yeah, Lux I'm Theater. Sure. Doing, I bet you that's a DVD extras on a couple of them, like them doing Shadow. I know there's a notorious. I feel like at least, with, at like least Claude Rains, right? Or yeah, either Cary Grant and Claude Rains, maybe Ingrid Bergman, and all you know. Because I think some of the old Criterion DVDs had, had it, that yeah. special feature. That's freaking awesome! Like that. See, we talk about radio all the time. How cool is that? You can go to the movies, watch the movie, and then like the next night on the radio that you listen to, they're going to do another a live version of it with maybe different actors. So yeah. cool. Sometimes the same. Same. Actors. Sometimes the same actors with the actor. Yeah, it's so so great. We we talk at nauseum about the theater of the mind. Like there's uh, there's a great uh, shot of a doubt where Cary Grant plays that part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jumping up and down. <laughs> so like, yeah. You know, I talk about Mr. Blanding's builds his dream house. Cary Grant. They do two versions of that, both with Cary Grant radio plays. One is with Ira Dunn, and one is with the, the woman he wanted. That they couldn't cast in the movie, the original casting choices. His wife is in is in that version, so it's it's so cool. Or shop around the corner. It's uh, it's not Jimmy Stewart in the role. It's um, Hume Croman or it's is Tom it? Hanks. It's Tom Hanks and playing just uh, opposite <laughs> Jessica Tandy. Who would have known? We should start. You know, we should start doing like start completely lying to people and be like you know. So it's Morton Downey Jr. <laughs> playing the role as Arbogast. <laughs> you know, just start coming up with this crazy stuff. Anyway, but uh. 
yeah, check us out on uh, on all you where you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes and all those other places. Check us out on social media. We're all around the block on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, like us, retweet us, interact with us. You can message us. Send and the us show was called Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, not Saturday Night Sleepovers. We we just had the blessing of being so, name so, dropped <laughs> on um on the, on the and I've already had this is. Uh, a little because this podcast, of course, drops a little later than when we've recorded it. But I've had people already telling us that they've heard heard the the uh, advertisement on the Gilbert Godfrey podcast, and they do a great job. But they say it right the first time: Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. And the second time, they get so zealous and say it so quickly, they just say Saturday Night. That Sleepovers. happens a lot, though. Even yeah. the, even the CLNS Media. Their oh, network yeah. had us had us wrong for a Saturday for a night sleepovers and, and you know my there's some other show out. that's getting a lot of a lot of play. a lot of attention called Saturday Night Sleepovers. And speaking of CLNS <laughs> Media Network, you can check us out there at CLNS Media Network. Uh, you can check out that channel; they have a lot of great stuff there, and you can find us there and a lot of other podcasts and sports related stuff, a lot of Boston centric related stuff. CLNS Media, uh, you could check us out. Like I said, we have our own. Uh, website Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We can get a lot of extras or read out, read about us. We're on all the social medias. Uh, we like people interacting with us and talking about the movies and giving if you your opinion. enjoy the show and you listen to us through iTunes, please consider rating and reviewing the show yeah, because that, that helps. Helping out, yeah. That helps up helping us getting recommended to other listeners. Yeah, if you like this, you may like that, you know. So uh, that also helps us get new listeners. And as we always say, please tell a friend. You know, let people know. If you like this podcast, you're into it, tell people who may not necessarily know because we, we're, we're trying to get a lot of – we feel like we're losing – uh, uh, At the very least, we've plateaued. Yeah, and we don't, we, we can't figure out why. Because sometimes movies we think that are so, like, you know, like okay, we knew coming out of the gate the Iger sanction wouldn't be doing gangbusters, but other movies we think like we thought Willow would really. Yeah, we thought Willow was going to be slamming out the open, open standing room only. But, but many of you have not listened to Willow. <laughs> how dare you, you <laughs> sons of bitches! But I don't know. We, we don't even figure out how. Some of our number one movie still stays number one and still goes because people are still finding it. And then are they going through our catalog or are they just searching Who knows? hashtags? We can't. It's a mystery. Yeah, God we're still knows. trying to grow. We're, we we appreciate That's all the point. of you. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate every one of you. So if you want to do your, your, your duty for us, we don't call we don't uh, we don't charge anything for this podcast. We we always say Yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we always say please. Um, we sell out. Uh, we always say please support your local local podcasters like us. Buy our books. Mine's Blood in the Streets. Blake's is uh, Scored to Death. And tell people about this podcast. Help us get the word on the street. Uh, my book, Blood in the Streets, uh, it's a fiction uh, crime historical fiction. is available on Amazon, uh, paperback, audiobook, and ebook. Blake has scored to death, which is also available in print, but also has a podcast. Which, by the way, this is going to date this episode a little bit, and I won't spend too much time with this. But like my book, scored to death, the, like my book when it came out in 2016, scored to death. The podcast is nominated for a Rondo Award. Yes, so Rondo Hatton. So please, Dion and I need a little Rondo Hatton bust. Yeah, because nobody loves. Rondo Hatton quite as much as we do, except for maybe Gilbert and Frank on Gilbert Godfrey's yeah, podcast. Yeah, which I've learned, yeah. So if you can, please consider, if you have the time, voting for Scored to Death, the podcast, at the Rondo Hatton Awards. I think you can go to rondoaward.com slash blog to see the entire ballot and how to vote, instructions on how to vote. 
And Scored to Death is nominated, I believe, for category number 20, Best Multimedia Site for 2018. And I believe voting ends around April 20th. So we're going to put a link in. We don't have a whole lot of time left, but uh, if you go to our really use the support. Yeah, go to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers for the when this comes out, when you're listening to this, and we'll have a link in the posting for this podcast of a link to send you to be able to vote. Yeah. Also, to our social vote. media, like at Scored to Death on Twitter and on Facebook, yeah. uh, has the information. So Blake's got the book that came out that's available on Amazon. Blake's wor- working on sequel on, on sequel to book. <laughs> Blake has the podcast on Scored to Death. Which and he, I also and have then, Cuts from the Crypt through the Damn Fine Network, where I play... Horror movie music, which, which is, is awesome, which, which comes a, out once a month, which is a monthly podcast I do, which is a, I've been having a lot of fun doing, uh, playing a lot of music from my personal archive. Basically, Blake's playing Adrian Barbeau <laughs> or Clint Eastwood, and I keep calling play Blisty for me, and he's like, "That's not that kind of podcast." And it's him playing a DJ, late night yeah, DJ. Yeah, I get to play uh, music from my with his from radio my, from my collection with of your radio movie voice. Scores. You know, welcome great. back. To... <laughs> Here we are again. <laughs> And, you know, check out his podcast uh, and uh, check out our books and our stuff. And uh, as you know, this is the last week, the last one in March. Before you know it, April's coming. And I don't want to boast, uh, but we, we are, we've got a very exciting um, theme. We've got, we've got plans. We've got some plans. Both for April and then going on. Into, into the summer. Into the summer. And we, uh, as far as even we already have Halloween, kind of an idea between a, a, a theme of Halloween. So we've got some very exciting stuff happening in the very near future. So before you know it, spring is going to be here. Spring is already here if you're listening to this podcast. And if you this is dating it because it could be five years from now you're listening to this. But, uh, you know. We'll have a lot coming in the 2019 uh, uh, season, so please yes. stay tuned and so, uh, spread the word. We please. have some exciting things happening for yeah. the rest of 2019. And uh, we will, as always, see you and hear you or listen to you in two weeks. Later. Later.